Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Recorded live. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click satellite system. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific.
All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still the 23rd of March 2015. It's still Monday. This is the first hour of the two-hour Monday evening show. It's about 10 minutes after 8 p.m. out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If all that works out for you, where you are live, you've got to remember this is Pacific Time out here, so adjust for where you're at. And if it is live, that means you can participate in the show. Go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com and uh, find the chat link. Go there. It's very easy. And you can ask questions or make comments, or you don't have to. You can talk about weaving baskets and making necklaces, as they are, as we speak in the chat room. Anyway, what that means is you can just talk with the other people in there about whatever they're talking about. You don't have to you don't have to participate in the show if you don't want to. Plus the chat room is open twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. So you don't even have to uh, wait for a live show or anything like that to go in there. You can go in there anytime. There's usually somebody in there. Eh, I don't know if they'll talk to you or not, but usually everybody's pretty friendly, so they will usually if they're there. But you can call in now. Calling in, well, there does have to be a live show on, and that show has to accept calls. This show does. So, 855-566-3738, at least that's when I uh, remember that, oh, somebody's on the phone. Um, anyway, 855-566-3738. Get to it. Uh, let's see here. Let's see. All right. Where, uh, where have I heard this before? Gee, I knew this was coming. I've mentioned this. Here's a headline. Internet providers sue to kill net neutrality. Well, that didn't take very long, now did it? The first legal shots have been fired in a battle over Internet regulation. Yes, it didn't take very long at all. Telcom companies filed a pair of lawsuits Monday in an attempt to reverse the Federal Communications Commission's new net neutrality rules. The suits are expected to be the opening shots in a long legal war against the controversial regulations. I, you know, I, I, I always, okay, I, I'm torn. I'm glad because, you know, this is the government, and they've really overstepped their bounds. And, you know, guys like AT&T, Verizon, and some other companies are in on this. They got deep pockets, okay, which is good. But the problem is their deep pockets are being plundered by lawyers. Now, I know this is going to come as a shock, but lawyers sometimes don't do the best they could to win as quickly as they could because they like to drag things on so they can bill, well, they can have more billable hours. Yeah, I know, it's it's a shock, isn't it, that a lawyer would be dishonest like that? Well, sorry, welcome to the real world, but that is what's going on, uh, and uh, all the time it goes on. And I just hope that's not what's going on here, because they don't really need to play around with this. I read a little bit of this, and... Uh, it says U.S. Telecom, which represents AT&T, Verizon, and other companies, filed its lawsuit in the U.S. Court of Appeals 
for the D.C. Circuit, while Alamo Broadband, a small Texas-based wireless internet provider, filed its suit in U.S. appeals court in New Orleans. Now, here's the quote. The focus of our legal appeal will be on the FCC's decision to reclassify broadband internet access service as a public utility service. That's good. And that really is where to attack it at. After a decade of amazing innovation and investment under the FCC's previous light-touch approach, John Banks, the senior vice president for U.S. Telecom, said in a statement, as our industry has said many times, we do not block or throttle traffic, and FCC rules prohibiting blocking or throttle, throttling will not be the focus of our appeal, which is good. No, this is good. Because uh, where they're attacking this is, is perfect. Because, I, and I said this before, and I'm, I'm you know, I love to see this, the, 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 like, oh, good. Finally, you know, because I can't sue the FCC, but AT&T and these guys certainly can. And uh, the suit claims the rules are outside the FCC's authority. It's true. Violate administrative law. More true. And infringe on the company's constitutional rights. Well, I'm not so sure corporations actually have constitutional rights because now the Supreme Court can make corporations people, I mean persons, if they want. Okay, and perhaps they may have gotten some ill-gotten rights under the 14th Amendment, but the Constitution as a whole gives people rights, not persons. But that's a whole other story. But anyway, the FCC's authority. Now, see, the main gist that I've seen with this is the fact that uh, – Title II, the whole rules that they're, they're using, because you see the FCC is just making rules and saying that they are relying on existing law, right? Well, the existing law was written, uh, Title II is all about regulating monopolies, all right? That's, that's what it's all about. It's regulating monopolies, because they realize, well, look, you know, I mean, you can't really have more than one power company. I mean, because what are you going to do? You're going to have five different companies running power lines, putting in power poles. I mean, the whole everywhere would be just filled with power lines and power poles and all that. See, somebody has to own those poles. Somebody has to pay to put those wires up, and then they own those. And, well, they're mine. I only get to use them. So there you have it. I have a monopoly. And the government realized in, in, in the case of, you know, the way we have our electric grid set up, that that's the way it kind of had to be. So rather than just let them run rampant, they said, all right, well, you can be a monopoly. But we're going to make you public utility, which means you're a monopoly, but we regulate you. Meaning you want to raise your rates, you've got to come and ask us, which Boy, that's done a lot of good, you know, because, I mean, the government's as corrupt as any corporation or monopoly out there. But that's, you know, generally not how it started. But that's the whole theory that, look, you can't just be raising your rates because you want to. You have to come and get permission and theoretically justify it to us to say, well, look, you know, our costs have gone up this much. So, therefore, we have to raise our prices this much just to keep up. That's the theory. 
That's not the case with the Internet. The Internet is not a monopoly. Not at all. Now, the you know telecoms are already regulated. Telephones, they're already regulated. They've already been deregulated. Regulated, then deregulated. Now what, they want to re-regulate them? The thing is, they said, look, you've got to let everybody use your lines. That's why you can go and... It doesn't matter who owns the lines outside your house. Like where I live. Now, CenturyLink owns them, which they bought from Embark. Well, you know, whatever, they merged. Before that, it was Northwest, uh, whatever, some little phone company. And, well, and then after that was Sprint. You know, so they own the actual copper going down my road. But, hey, I can get long distance from whoever I want. You know, I don't have to uh, I don't have to get long distance from CenturyLink. I can buy it from anybody. That's the rules. You know, Internet, hey, I'll tell you, where I live, I can't get Internet from anybody but CenturyLink. They won't let them. Because anybody else has to use their equipment, and uh, they won't let them. Nope, you got to get it from us. Which, hmm. but anyway, so that's how that's going. So I'm glad to see this. So uh, you know, this is going to be you know what, ten, twenty years maybe this will be settled. When really, I mean, I'm glad to see this that you know AT&T and Verizon and those guys are saying, all right, that's it, we're suing you. You can't just do this. But what I'd rather have them do, and I think it would probably be more, and maybe they'll do it along with this, but I think it would be more cost-effective, really, because these lawyers are going to cost a lot of money, man. They're going to drag this on forever. And, and, you know, the courts are slow anyway. I think AT&T and Verizon and these companies might want to get their buckets full of money and head on off to Congress and say, listen, Look, man, we want a simple law. We want you to write a simple law, making it unlawful for any entity to classify the Internet as a public utility, period. That's it. That's the end of the law. How hard is that? It's simple. And everybody should be behind that. There is no reason. That is a dangerous thing. Now, look, if somebody's getting out of hand on the Internet, you know, and they want to start doing fast lanes and slow lanes and all this stuff, okay, fine. Maybe it needs to have a look at it. Maybe the government needs to say, look, man, do I have to stick my foot in your uh, behind or what? Knock it off. But, you know, overall, the Internet's worked fairly good. And the one thing it does not need is the government involved. So, you know, how hard? AT&T and those guys, they all got plenty of money. They can go buy themselves some congressmen. Simple. Make it unlawful to classify the Internet as a public utility. That ends this whole thing. (laughs) That's the end of that. Bang. Oh, you thought you were going to use Title II? Well, you're not. Simple. And, you know, even I think, you know, and... 
wouldn't it be nice to see Congress finally get along, all the communists get together and vote the same way for once, huh? I mean, really, because this is something that the Democrats and the Republicans would really, it would behoove them to get behind, because uh, really, the only people who are for net neutrality are the very, very stupid And I'm sorry if you're one of them, uh, you are uninformed, and you don't know what you're talking about if you're supporting net neutrality, or you don't like freedom. You know, you don't think people should be allowed to have, uh, you know, different opinions, and everybody should, uh, you know, nobody should be allowed to say anything you disagree with or anything like that. Well, then, okay, maybe you're not uninformed, you're just some sort of Nazi tyrant or something, I I don't know, but... It's a nice-sounding name, net neutrality. Wow, that sounds nice. Sounds unimposing. Sounds harmless. Sounds even good. Kind of positive. I don't know why, but it does. It's got a positive sound to it. But that doesn't mean anything because what it actually is is really bad. So now the thing is, Anybody would get behind it, especially, well, then again, I say especially the youth, but then again, a lot of them are part of that very stupid thing. Not not all youth, don't get me wrong, but you know who I'm talking about. If you are, you know, the kids, some of the kids you go to school with, you know, the, the sheep that just, they don't know anything about anything, they just follow on, well, what's the cool kids doing? Those guys, yeah, they're... Uh, they probably, whatever the cool kids think, uh, net neutrality is cool, Obama's cool, isn't it cool? Okay. So that's good news, kind of. We'll see how that go, goes. Here's some bad news. Yeah, let's mix it up. Good news, bad news. <laughs> yeah. That is from a couple days ago, March 20th. Looking at a, uh, a website. It's actually not, it's, well, it is a website. Sovereign Man blog, I guess. Uh, looks like a blog, anyway. Uh, imagine going to the bank to withdraw some cash. Now, a lot of you have been listening. Um, you, you heard Al Adask interview uh, Kent Holbin and uh, one of his supporters on two different shows. And if you've been tuning into ABR2, you probably heard Ernie Sanders do the same. Uh, and maybe you followed it up, and maybe you're aware of Ken Holbin's case. And one of the big things about his case was uh, structuring. Structuring is where the government says, well, uh, yeah, we've got these rules here that uh, if you take out more than $10,000 out of your bank, that the bank needs to notify us, meaning the government, of this. So, we've come up with another law that if you take out less than $10,000, we'll call it structuring that you're trying to avoid the reporting requirement. Oh, or evade. I guess it would be evade if it's against the law. You know, folks, isn't this like a catch-22? You take out more than 10000 you get reported. You take out less, and uh, 
you know, you get your money seized because you're obviously trying to avoid the reporting. Really? Now, imagine going to the bank to withdraw some cash. Having some cash on hand is always a prudent strategy, and especially today when more and more bank deposits are creeping into negative territory, meaning that you have to pay the banks for the privilege that they gamble with your money. And the government has also said, I might add, folks, that if they lose that gamble, they can take your deposits and cover their bad bets with it, and you're just S-O-L, okay? I know, it sounds like some sort of thing that, you know, some paranoid delusion conspiracy nut would make up, but you know what? It's the law! Yeah, that's right. So you tell your teller you'd like to withdraw $5,000 from your account. Now, okay, look, $5,000 is way away from 10000 so, you know, it'd be kind of tough to say, well, you're structuring. Well, really? So if I take out 20 bucks, I'm structuring? Really? Because I should be taking out 10000 so they can report it to you? Is that right? Am I getting this? But 5000 is only half of that, so it's kind of tough for structuring. So they now they're doing something else. Well, she hesitates nervously and wants to know why. You try to politely let her know that it's none of the bank's business, it's your money. The teller disappears for a few minutes, leaving you waiting. Then she returns, she tells you, you can collect your money in a few days, as they don't have that kind of money on hand at the moment. Yeah, this is an international bank, right? Right? Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase Manhattan, right? These are big banks, and they don't have $5,000 on hand? Really? You don't have $5,000 on hand? Well, you know, I'm losing a little confidence in your bank if you don't even have $5,000 on hand because, uh, you know, I've met people that have $5,000 on hand, and they're not a bank. You're a bank, and you don't have 5000 bucks on hand? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, hey, you know what? On second thought, instead of 5000 out of this bank, give me everything out of this bank. I want to close my account. I don't trust you people. You don't have $5,000 on hand. You're not much of a bank as far as I'm concerned. But slightly irritated because of the inconvenience, you head home. But as you pull into your driveway later, there's an unexpected surprise waiting for you. Two police officers would like to have a word with you about your intended withdrawal. This sounds far-fetched. Think again, because it could very well become a reality in the land of the free if the Justice Department gets its way. Earlier this week, this is why, folks, this is why it's so important that Loretta Lynch does not become the head of the Justice Department. Because this is the kind of stuff that she will say, oh, yes, you betcha. Earlier this week, a senior official from the Justice Department spoke to a group of bankers about the need for them to rat out their customers to the police. What a lot of people don't realize is the banks are already unpaid government spies. Although, are they really unpaid, folks? I mean, honestly, could you get away with robbing a trillion dollars and only having to pay $40 billion fine? That's not a bad return on criminal activity. You know, I mean, really, think about it, folks. So you steal a trillion dollars and you've got to give up $40 billion as, a, you know, your cut to the government. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody gets fired. Well, that's what the government did with the banks. 
Everybody, at, you know what? Everybody at Goldman Sachs should be in prison already, and nobody went. Nobody. Federal regulations in the land of the free require banks to file suspicious activity reports, or FARs, on their customers. And guess what? It's not optional. Banks have minimum quotas. That's right. So, you know, if they're low on their quota, you meaning nobody's really been very suspicious that month, well, they're going to have to start making up suspicious activity because they've got a quota. They need to fill out and submit quotas to the bank, to the federal government. If they don't file enough suspicious activity reports, they will be fined. They can lose their banking charter. And, yes, bank executives and directors can even be imprisoned for noncompliance. That's the nature of the financial system in this country. Chances are your banker has filed, filled one out on you. They submitted 1.6 million SARs in 2013 alone. So there's 1.6 million suspicious banking transactions? <laughs> really? Wow. But now the Justice Department's saying that ain't enough. Nope, that ain't enough. Now... Whenever banks suspect something suspicious is going on, they want them to pick up the phone and call the cops. No more reports. Just call the cops. We encourage those institutions to consider whether to take more action, specifically to alert law enforcement authorities about the problem. Who may be able to seize funds, initiate an investigation, or take other proactive steps? So if you want to take... What the thing is, folks, it's not suspicion. They don't want you draining your bank account because they'll send their little enforcers to come out and get that money from you. Seize it. So what exactly constitutes suspicious activities, you might think? Pretty much anything. According to the Handbook for the Federal Financial Institution Examination Council, banks are required to file an SAR with respect to transactions conducted or attempted by, at or through a bank or an affiliate, and aggregating $5,000 or more. Utterly obscene, according to Justice Department. Uh, according to the Justice Department, going to the bank and withdrawing $5,000 should potentially prompt the bank to rat you out to the police. There's something else about this that uh, I want to point out. This may be a very early form of capital controls in the land of the free. Yet bank, you know, uh, you think? Well, folks, you know, you see this coming, right? Now, I don't need to really give you any advice, do I? I mean, you get what's going on, don't you? Obviously, if you take out more than $10,000, they report you. Now, if you take out $5,000 or more, they may call the cops on you. What does that tell you? Hmm? Let's see. $5,000 or more, they call the cops and file a, you know, suspicious activity. 5000 or more. What does that tell you? You figure it out, folks. And, you know, start taking steps. 
I, I mean, I've already told people that I think, you know, it's a good idea that <laughs> you keep as little money in the bank. And look, when I say as little money as you can in the bank, I realize you've got to have operating funds. i got to have operating funds. You've got to have operating funds. I'm not telling anybody that, oh, hey, dump your – Dump your debit card. Uh, dude, get rid of this. Get rid of that. Live in a hut. Uh, you know, move to South America. You know, I'm not telling anybody to do anything like that. I'm just saying that if you have a savings account where you're just piling up money in it, that's probably not a very good idea anymore. And it's not just because, oh, you know, say you want to go buy a $9,000 used car or something. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, you go to the bank, you get your money, and you're arrested, and the cops seize your 9000 bucks, and you don't get the car or nothing. Yeah, that wouldn't be fun, would it? No. But the other thing is, what if the bank makes some bad bets? Oh, what if they don't? What if they've already made some bad bets, and they come home to roost, as in the derivatives, and they go, well, we need to take everybody's deposits and use it to cover our bad bets, because you can all lose, but we can't. And now, well, you're going to have to only, uh, you know, we can only, I'm sorry, we can only give you $100 a month out of your bank account. Because, well, we're using it all to cover our bad bets. Legally, they can do that, folks. Legally, they can steal all your money from you in your bank account. Now, will they? I don't know. But they can. Why would you want to keep your money in a place like that? or any more money than you'd have to. You know what? It's time to start looking at the banks like any other casino. You only put the money in there. You only play with the money at the casino that you can afford to lose. That doesn't mean you want to lose it. It just means, okay, it's not going to be the end of the world if I do lose it. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We'll play Stump the Room, and we'll be back in a bit. Thank you. 
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still the 23rd of March 2015. It's Monday evening, first hour, winding down here pretty quick. Okay, I should tell the room uh, all their guesses were wrong. Not necessarily bad guesses, but wrong. And uh, the first song... The name of it is I Might Be Lying. I like that line. That you know, I say I'm doing fine. That I might be lying. Anyway, that was Eddie and the Hot Rods. And then the second song there was The Refreshments. So there you go. There you have it. There it is. And yes, thank you for reminding me there are going to be some daytime schedule changes. Uh, Let's see. I'm moving. Okay. My noon show is going to be 2 p.m. And this is all Pacific because, you know, the universe revolves around the Pacific. Anyway, my show will be moving from noon to 2 p.m. And financial survival will be two hours long, starting at noon. Right? And we're gonna I'm gonna move Bo to uh eleven AM ending at noon. So it'll be Bo financial survival for two hours and then me. Right? So that's how that's going. And uh we're looking to shoot this, uh, to give this, a, to start this off on Monday. Okay, we were, uh, you know, there were some, there was some discussion about Wednesday and then Friday, but it was decided not by me. I just do what I'm told. Uh, you know, <laughs> actually, no, I, you know, I had input, of course, and uh, it looks like Monday. Okay, looks like it's going to be Monday. 
And, uh, you know, it's good to start things on the. So that's when it is, and everything is set, and that's the way it'll be. So uh, I'll be making this announcement during the day. And and no, no, Bo's not live, but we'll be playing his replay at 11 a.m. Years and years of of, uh, Freedom Call, so you shouldn't get bored anytime soon. Anyway, so there you go. There you have it. What do we do? We got the uh, dump the room out of the way. Uh, me too, room zero. And uh, there you have it. And I got to say, I like both those songs a lot. And um, Never heard of those people. Never heard of those bands. Well, maybe not, but you got to admit, that was pretty good. Okay, anyhow. Let's get back to some stuff. So let's see. Uh, Where were we? The bank. Well, we're done with the bank because pretty much told you all you need to know, folks. This is what's going on. You can see what's happening, okay? The, The financial system is collapsing, and they are trying to, you know, you know, they're basically what's going on, folks, this is akin to going along on the Titanic and instead of just not having enough lifeboats, they decide to start chaining up the lifeboats that you can't get on them. You know, because, oh, well, we don't have enough lifeboats for everybody, so, uh, you know, we're not going to let anybody use because their financial system is crashing and burning. Whether you want to believe that or not, it's up to you. But that's what I see happening. And they know it. Why else would they be doing this? Why else would they be, be I mean, it went from 10000 to 5000 What's next? Really, what's next, folks? And now they've got the, 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 the stinking little clerk who can barely say her own name in English at the bank, going to call the cops because I want $5,000 of my own money? Wow. Why? Well, oh, yes. How about this? I bet you never guessed this, but the U.S. police, hold world record for murder? Come on, you would have never guessed that, right? Yeah, it would seem that the police in the U.S. are committed to breaking a murder record uh, in 2015 as the total body count at the hands of police is up to 138. That's one person every eight hours. Moreover, every police officer killed this year was murdered by other cops. Wow. Continue reading below for the gripping article from the Free Thought Project with statistics sure to shock and enrage you. Well, that's what we need, some shock and enrage. As of February 16th, only a month and a half into 2015, there has been at least 138 individuals killed by police in the United States since the first of the year. 
the first of the year being January. Okay, by February 16th, 138 dead. The frightening, uh, frighteningly high number averages out to three killed per day or someone killed every eight hours by the police. While there is no government-run database, killed by police has taken it upon themselves to keep track, and they're doing a fantastic job thus far. And, folks, that is killedbypolice.net. Go look that up. Killed, and you can do the www if you want, but you really don't need to, but killed by police, all one word, dot net. Just to put things into perspective, let's take a look at the rates at which police in other countries kill their citizens. Let's look at our immediate neighbors to the north in Canada. The total number of citizens killed by law enforcement officers in the year of 2014 was 14. That's only 78 times less people than in the United States. Now, hey, granted, Canada is not a very populated place, but still, 14 in a whole year, we got 138 in a little over a month. If we look at the uh, U.K., One person was killed by the police in 2014, and nobody in 2013. English police reportedly fired guns a total of three times in all of 2013. Wow. Gee, golly whiz. Uh, Are you surprised? I can't say that I actually am surprised. Killedbycops.net. Check it out, folks. Check it out frequently. Keep an eye on what's going on. Oh, my, my, my. Let's see. Well, I'll get to this tomorrow. How the United States is allied with ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Huh? Huh? Gosh, I hate to say I told you so. But, uh, but uh, I have another story that is somewhat related but not the same from a whole different place. Iraqi commander tapped communication, confirms U.S. aids ISIL. See, that's ISIS, but they use a different name in this article. Oh, yeah. Nice, huh? Told you so. Now, here's this. The great GMO legitimation. Author of Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, Stephen Drucker, recently talked of how back in the 70s a group of molecular biologists formed part of a scientific elite that sought to allay fears about genetic engineering by putting a positive spin on it. At the same time, critics of this emerging technology were increasingly depicted as being little more than non-scientists who expressed ignorant but well-meaning concerns about science and genetic engineering. This continues today, but the attacks on critics are becoming more vicious. Former British Environment Minister Owen Patterson recently attacked critics of GMOs with a scathing speech that described them as self-serving elitist green blob that was condemning billions to misery. 
You know, and, and it's funny because it's exactly the opposite. Greenpeace notably decides its opinions. Uh, Greenpeace notably decides its opinions must prevail regardless of others. So it aggregates itself to the right to tear up and destroy things it doesn't like. That is absolutely typical of people who are unable to convince others by debate and discussion. And in the last century, such attitudes, amplified obviously, ended up killing people that others didn't like. But the same personality type, the authoritarian, do as I tell you, was, was at the root of all of it. Such groups, therefore, sit uneasily with countries that are democracies. According to this, critics of GMOs possess authoritarian personality types. Critics of GMOs, right? Authoritarian personality types because, gee, we want our crap labeled, all right? I want to know what kind of crap you're feeding me. Oh, yeah, what are you, some kind of Nazi? Yeah, right. And uh, are ignorant of science and unable to convince people of their arguments and thus resort to violence. Part of the pro-GMO narrative also involves a good deal of glib talk about democracy. In an open letter to me, Anthony uh, Travaba says, It would be nice if you could say you are a Democrat and believe that argument is better than destruction, but argument that deals with all the facts and does not select uh, out those to construct a misleading program. This guy goes on and on, blah, 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 but the bottom line is, they're lying, okay? They're lying about GMOs, folks, and their whole thing is to attack, attack, attack if you are against GMOs. It's that simple. We're going to go uh, with we're done with this hour, and I'll be back in a few. I'll have Dean Lauren on. That is if everything works right. We'll have Dean on, and we'll do another hour. So if you can, stay tuned. If you can't, thanks for listening, and I'll be back in a few. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. 
sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC sees in use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU-band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system.
All right. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. Go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You can participate in the show from there. It is March 23rd, 2015. It's about mm, 10 minutes after 9 p.m. Pacific time. So if that works out, TheAmericanVoice.com, AmericanVoiceRadio.com. Look for the chat link. Click it. Follow the easy instructions. Go on in there. You can ask questions, make comments, participate in the show, or just chat with the other folks in the chat room. There's uh, uh, several people in there now that you can chat with. Or you can call in 855-566-3738. Well, it's 10 minutes after 9 Pacific time. That means this is the second hour of Monday night. And that means we have our co-host, 
coming to us live from New York City, and by the way, the future, because it is three hours later over there, which makes it, oh, now 11 minutes into tomorrow already. So welcome to the past, Dean. Well, thank you, Frank. It's another rousing 99-cent report. There you go. Yeah. And uh, I want to... uh, this is going to be a fun show tonight, and we're going to discuss history. Fun? History. How can that fun. be? How can we have fun? Isn't this the collapse of the Western civilization? Well, you did know. I, I said I would call the collapse of France by the equinox, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, France did silently fall with the elections. They have a second round of elections coming for this um, Sunday. But it appears that the National Front, although they didn't take the first place, um, are moving up. So by 2017, the National Front, you might call them the right wing. Yes. (laughs) And uh, I know you were going to say Nazis, weren't you? But I just figured I'd say right wing. Oh, skinheads, Nazis. Ukrainians, whatever. (laughs) The Ukrainians are taking over France. Oh, no. Oh, so, folks. um, And, in fact, on May... uh, So, France is falling. In fact, you know, this whole issue with um, Israel. And, by the way, uh, Netanyahu is scrambling to form a coalition. Now... From what I read, uh, he did. That he that, that they're reporting anyway that he did. Now, whether that's no. true or not, who knows? And there's also reports out there that are saying that our president, Obama, had a lot more to do with the elections over there than uh, had been previously reported, except perhaps by you. Well, you know... The bottom line is uh, Netanyahu still has to talk to the different parties. He hasn't talked to everybody. He's made so many promises that, um, and he's given away so much that he is—he's going to be hard pressed to deliver anything. Well, and his and his brilliant backtracking on on a two-party state. Well, you know, it was perfect. Obama said what. No, we're not going to believe you. You said it. You said it once, and that's enough. A one-party state, that's what you believe in. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, I don't know why this comes as a surprise to anybody, but that Netanyahu would say something like that. I mean, didn't everybody realize that's kind of where he was coming from? And then he would lie to just win. And that Charlie Hebdo, when they shot all those people in France, was really the Mossad? I mean, come on. It was all about getting the the votes up. And now we find out that in this Iran negotiation for nuclear power, that France, all France wants to do is sell them the nuclear equipment. Well, isn't that all France ever wants to do is, you know. Yeah, and, and the bottom line is if France doesn't sell them that nuclear equipment, they're dead in the dirt economically. So, you know, France is out, folks. And on May 7th, when Britain comes in and votes, 
they will fall. We also had two other elections. We had uh, Andalusia in Spain, which went to the Catalans. And uh, what was the other election that went down? Um, it must have been the France. But uh, both sides, you know, it, it appears that this whole uh, European Union is, is falling apart faster than we can even, you know, count. Well, and do you think part of the uh, – do you think that there's any part of that falling apart that has something to do with Europe's realization that uh, we are energy dependent upon natural resources coming out of Russia and uh, – some of them want to side with the United States and the Federal Reserve, and others say, no, we would like to have heat, and uh, we're not going to do that. You think that's got anything to do with it, or is it more got to do with the the euro collapsing? I think it has to do with the euro collapsing. You know, the, you know, our banks were, were, were broken. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were raped with the primer and liber, you know, uh, fraud, uh, just think what was happening in the European banks, okay? And now they're facing what we had to go through. And to tell you the truth, tonight's going to, like I said, it's going to be fun because what I want to bring out to everybody is uh, we want to discuss the coups again. Because this is very important because, folks, it, back in 1972 when Richard Nixon uh, Watergate, the tapes came up. What the American public rarely found out about was that the Pentagon was in the basement taping the president and that there was a major coup conducted by Admiral Moore and Alexander Haig. Uh. And that Alexander Haig was, in fact, the deep throat. And then it was Alexander Haig who cut Richard Nixon's throat. And that he was employing a, um, a yeoman by the name of Radford to walk around and steal all the documents that were top secret, that were on people's desks, and photocopy them and give them to the Pentagon. So it wasn't about Nixon's 17-minute pause in the tape or his tapes. It was the fact that the Pentagon had uh, put taps on all the president's phones, was rifling the State Department's documents, and they got caught. And what's more is when they ordered the illegal bombing of Cambodia, and it was Kissinger who ordered it, they did so knowing that they ordered it so that they could come around and then negotiate a peace with the Chinese and Vietnam. So, folks, you you don't unleash thousands of bombs and then come in and negotiate as if you didn't do it. You know what I'm saying? And so we've all seen this movie, the President's Men, I think exactly. Yeah, all the uh, President's Bever- Men. That's the one about, um, you know... Um, Bernstein and Woodward. Yeah, Rick, exactly. Well, what they didn't tell you, American people, was that Woodward was 
a Navy intelligence man working for Admiral Moore and Alexander Haig, who was briefing them. And he worked directly under Admiral Wielander, who was involved in the Pentagon's tapings of, of, of Nixon, and that he was uh, stationed on the USS Fox, as well as the USS, what was the other one? Um, Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. So this whole thing with Woodward uh, was a, 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 a falsity. And it turned out that Hillary Rodham Clinton was recruited by a Mr. Magruder, who was the Republican, uh, Jeb Stuart Magruder, was the committee to reelect the president, and he was under Dean. And so they stacked the, the commission against Nixon so that Haig would come out on top and the Pentagon. Folks, the American public got taken big time on this. Got any comment, Frank? Well, other than Alexander Haig, uh, Alexander Haig was uh, promoted in a a non-traditional sort of way. He went from a lieutenant colonel to a general very quickly. And that doesn't happen. Okay? It, it just doesn't happen. And it yeah. happened with him. And it happened because he was part of the intelligence with the Navy, and they were grooming him, and he pulled all these dirty tricks, and that's how it got up. Well, and this is why I'm pointing that out, because it, it does lend credibility to the, the idea that Haig was involved in something not on the up and up, really, because he was rewarded, clearly, for, clearly for tape, rewarded for something. For taping the president. And it comes out in this book called Silent Coup, The Removal of a President by Len Kolodny and Robert Getlin. And let me tell you, folks, this came out in 1991, and the New York Times buried it as well as the Post, the Washington Post. And if this had come out for the American people in 1974, it would have changed the course of history if people had known that the Pentagon had infiltrated the executive offices. And, you know, even if you hated Nixon, even if you hated you know, everybody that was associated. And by the way, um, Frank, I sent you a, a piece on, uh, I believe it was uh, Major Burns, okay? And I want to bring this to everybody's attention about uh, General Kevin Burns, okay? He was, uh, and i got to get this open because I, I didn't yep, have it. I see it. I, I've got it right here. I, okay. He, he was a four-star uh, general at the New, uh, in New York City and was involved with Army training. And what happened was they were going to issue a, an order for 50,000 
military trainees to be called up who were Hispanic. They were going to offer all these illegal aliens um, in 2005 citizenship if they signed up, and they were going to use them as collateral damage in Iraq. And our Major General Burns said no. They don't speak English. They're not trainable. And there's a potential for a big disaster, and I'm not going to stand there and and agree with Bush and Rumsfeld. And he was court-martialed for adultery when, in fact, he had separated from his, his wife and had begun divorce proceedings. Yeah, I see that they were actually, it was actually in subordination, but they they just trumped it up to, you know, some sexual thing so they could, you know, because one thing in the military that they never want to admit is mutiny or insubordination from their higher-ranking people. They never want to present anything but a united front, a very obedient, professional, you know, uh, I follow orders sort of guys. They they, so, they have this aversion, okay? So Even Burns, if you did commit, uh, you know, I, I mean, if there was a major mutiny on a, on a Navy ship, you'd never hear about it. Right. So Burns was one of the officers who was associated with a, a, a inner group that was opposed to Bush and Cheney, and that's why he was taken out. But, folks, I want you to understand that this has just cost Jeb Bush the election. If they bring this up in Spanish, that they were going to offer all these uh, illegal aliens citizenship for military sign-ups, which they've done, only to kill them like they did in Vietnam, and somebody says this in Spanish and puts this out into the Spanish news, Jeb Bush is toast. Comprende, Monsieur Bush? Uh, Monsieur Bush. Oh, I'm sorry, Senor Bush. Okay. Well, you know, I got from what I'm reading here, I got to agree with Burns. I mean, uh, what they basically were telling him to do was uh, get 50,000 military trainees who had a lower education levels, criminal records, and a lack of proficiency in English. What what kind of army is that? And you, they were going to offer them citizenship and then murder them, folks. Plain and simple. They were going to be the, the dead bodies piled up in which to start World War III. We were going to kill a bunch of Mexican wetbacks, folks. Now we're just going to use. Now we're just going to use Ukrainians. Yeah. So, folks, and I can say that because my father was Mexican and Indian. All right? So don't get your, your, your knickers in a twist, okay? Because now we're going to talk about our dear Major General Fiscus. Does, does anybody actually really wear knickers anymore? Yes, you do, Frank. I do? I've been knickers? called out. I'm calling you out. I don't even know and what knickers are. <laughs> they're long underwear for women. Oh. Okay. No, I don't use those. Thank you. Okay, so what I want to say to you is is that everybody, including Major General Thomas J. Fiscus of the Air Force, who was an aggressive opponent of torture policy, was uh, 
basically court-martialed by Bush. Okay? There were assi- uh, military investigators, investigators combed through his emails, his phone calls, uh, on uh, anonymous allegations of improper relations with women. They were never substantiated. You know, so basically, folks, anybody that stood in front of Cheney and Bush piling up bodies so that they could justify a world war, and that includes Brigadier General, uh, what's his name, who got caught with that lady? Um, Reyes? No, no, or him too. But the other one that we used to cover, um, they were being taken out, folks, because what we'll discuss in the second half about the coup that went down with the Breton uh, conference and how Proskauer Rose and various people took over the bond market under FDR. And we're talking Henry Morgenthau uh, Jr., the Treasury, Secretary of the Treasury. We're talking about Henry Dexter White from Boston. Now we know why Boston was with Bernie Madoff. Okay, we are talking about uh, Mackie Rakow. That was Stephen Rakow's, uh, Kay's father. Okay, we're talking about all these people from Harvard, the Vatican, which will form its bank in 1944, a year or two before the Breton Woods, uh, in anticipation of uh, uh, participating in this. And... Um, this is all done by Ford and IBM, folks. All right, Ford, IBM, and these, uh, what was the guy's name who did Westinghouse? Uh, J.P. Morgan and uh, this other guy. So we're, we're, I want to bring this out to you folks because it's back in 1912, the Rockefeller uh, bribed, Sun Yat-sen in China to overthrow the Qing dynasty. And he promised Sun Yat-sen total support of the United States to take down the Chinese royal empire in exchange for three things. The banks, the railroads, and commerce. Think about it, folks. And so let's talk about the railroads. And so I guess I'm going to dedicate this song to Warren Buffett, the man with all the inside information that should be prosecuted for inside trading on information within the executive branch. And by the way, people, there are so many double agents in the executive branch that are uh, trading information between the Pentagon and the CIA and and the executive branches. Now, now when you say double double agent, okay, what's the two sides here? Well, you can't be in the executive branch and in the civilian side and also play the Pentagon side. Not theoretically, anyway. Not theoretically, no. You're you're, you're there working, you know, with the president, and in the meantime, you're taking his information and giving it to the Pentagon so that 
you know, Henry Kissinger and Nixon, don't pull another Cambodia, kill all these people, and then use it to get rid of the military. Okay? Face it, folks. This is what we're up to right now. And it has a lot to do with the fact of inside trading on the bond market. Now, let, me, let, me, let me get this picture straight here. What that sounds like to me is that this government is beginning to start eating its own. Absolutely. Well, that's and, never a good sign. <laughs> well, that's just the way it is. And we'll explain that when we come back. So, let's, Frank, let's just... Go to the music. Roll the tape. All right, we'll be back in a few.
have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still the 23rd of March, 2015. It's about 9.43 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. It's Monday evening, second hour. If all that's true where you're at, we are, in fact, live. Go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Anyway, we've got Dean Lauren coming to us from the future because he's way over there on the East Coast in New York City. Welcome back, Dean, and uh, tell us uh, where you got that song from. Okay, that's Gin, uh, Bathtub Gin. That was, again, recorded down on, uh, oh, God, Leffields, down in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. You know, I kind of like that one. Uh, yeah, I, I played it just for you, Frank. I did. I kind of like that one. It's it's got that, and somebody in the room even uh, noticed that it's kind of got that little bit of Grateful Dead sound to it. It's called yeah, it's a cover of Fish. And uh, you know, was that Electric Light Orchestra you played? No, actually, it wasn't. But they've done that song. Um, okay. You know, Rock and Roll is King is a real covered song, and that particular uh, version was by the Teen Cats, which of course. The room didn't get so they are over four tonight. But of okay. course, you're you're a given because they'll never ever guess the songs that you <laughs> you bring. And who, well, who they, oh, by the way, folks, we're, what I'm going to talk to you about now is incredible because uh, we're going to get to the Breton Conference, uh, uh, which was nothing more than an alcoholic, drug-filled prostitute opportunity to rig the entire bond market. I think I was there in the uh, in the late 70s. Okay. But first, I want to go back to Watergate because I actually, uh, Jack Anderson's brother uh, was my teacher, John Anderson, in uh, uh, junior high school for English. And now, so, this you know, is not the same John Anderson that ran for president. No, no, this is Jack Anderson for the Post. Okay. Uh, you know, the reporter right. who covered the uh, prostitution kind of. that was going down with the Pentagon. Uh, so what we want to uh, – there was a call girl ring operating out of the White House, folks. That's what Jack Anderson was reporting on, okay? And uh, so is that, that what, a, Is that what all Michelle's uh, uh, assistants are doing? Uh, let's, let, let's focus now. Because what happened was, when you talk about war profiteering, people go, oh, well, you know, these guys come in and they sell us cheap uniforms and they do this and they make a lot of profit. They sell us bombs. They get us into dropping all this stuff. Well, then how does the United States pay for it? You pay for it with bonds that are issued. B-O-N-D-S, bonds. So Secretary of Defense, Cyrus Vance was totally in on this when he brought in Haig because, you see, they knew that Nixon had negotiated the doors open with Chow and Lai to, you know, on behalf of Rockefeller to get what Yat, uh, Sun Yat-sen had promised, the banks, the railroads, and the commerce. So what they needed to do was issue all these bonds to pay for the war. And that was how uh, Morgenthau, Robert Morgenthau, became DA of New York City. 
because his father was Secretary of the Treasury at the and, and attended the Breton Conference with uh, and Dexter White was there from Boston. So Harvard, which was coordinating this whole thing for the bond market, was coordinating Henry Morgenthau at the United States Treasury level, and then it was manipulating New York at the uh, with Governor uh, Dewey at the state level because they were going to sell all the bonds out of Wall Street through the firm of Proskauer Rose and what will become Goldman Sachs. So folks, since 1934, there has been a major bond manipulation market out of Wall Street that Morgenthau family has been involved in. This is why Cyrus Vance was put in to replace Morgenthau as DA. This is why Robert Fisk in Fordham, which it was St. John's and Holy Cross, the Jesuit school in Boston that masterminded this whole Ponzi scheme with Harvard. Folks, this is big serious because this is why we have trillion dollars of debt because these jerks rigged the bond market to pay for all this war profiteering on Wall Street. Bonds for bombs. That's right. The new that's program. Ex- that's what it was exactly about. And everybody was involved. Disney, Ford, IBM especially. Okay. Yeah. And um, you got anything to say about this before we talk about, like, all the Cornell? Well, uh, no, uh, you know what I've been noticing, though? I've been noticing a lot of these, uh, and I've got to say, unqualified people that are leaving government and and getting big-time jobs as the president of USC. Or, or other thing, you know, big university jobs, and they're really, they're really not really qualified for that. I mean, they may be smart and all and all this, but you know, what, what, how does this translate from what they were doing in their new job? It's kind of like uh, when you look at, you know, Petraeus. It's like, oh, he's a partner in a private equity fund. Now, how does his general, uh, you know, as being a general, how does that skill set translate over to? private equity funds. Supply contracts were rigged. How does it uh, translate into universities? I'm talking about the endowments. Yeah, but I don't think their skill set is what got them there. I think this is some, they got, they obviously got something else going on. And and I think that's what you're talking about. because they were throwing contracts. Okay. You know, there was a big article in the Times today about that, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's son-in-law, who's the son of a a, 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 a crook, okay, an embezzler. Yeah. All right? It turns out that they are embezzling or are money laundering through uh, the Evergale uh, hedge fund that she put together. All right? So all these universities are using their endowments go into these hedge funds and, and work this um, Ponzi scheme, folks. And all these monies are then being donated back through these people who were involved in these schemes back as donations to the universities that are laundering the money. 
like Harvard, Cornell, Fordham, you know, wake up. These nonprofits are nothing more than money laundry for the crimes of, of bonds manipulation for organized crime with drugs in the Second Circuit if you're in New York. Okay? So when these people are translating into these jobs, say, where were the like the state contracts when Hillary was in the State Department. She rigged every freaking contract so that she could get payoffs that are coming into the hedge fund now. That's what her her uh, her emails are going to show. Hedge okay. fund or the Clinton uh, Foundation or whatever they it's call the it. It's the hedge fund. Oh, no. Now it's coming out about the hedge fund, not just the Clinton <laughs> Foundation. That was just the tip of the iceberg. They, you know, I mean, it started with white water, and now look at—they just never stopped. The Clinton. No, they just never it stopped. It started with Sun Yat-sen when Rockefeller went for uh, in 1912 to take over China. Okay, and people forget that Nixon started doing contracts for Standard Oil, so he was Rockefeller's boy. Okay, you know, people forget that FDR and Teddy Roosevelt, they were both uh, in Harvard. They were both uh, assistant secretaries of the Navy. They were both governors of New York. They were both presidents of the U.S. When you're assistant secretary of the Navy, you are doing all the supply contracts. Okay, folks, this is what it's about when you're in the military, payola. And so right now, we've got to look at General Ordierno and then the Navy, Mr. Green something, uh, the Admiral of the Navy. Gentlemen, if Obama wants to come down on you right now, he can do that very clearly and court-martial you. And there's nothing you can do about it. He's got you by the coyote. Well, you know, and the thing is, though, I, I think, he probably would have already done that if somebody didn't have their hand on his cojones also. Because no. Obama is by no means a lily-white, clean uh, sheet on this thing. He's as dirty as the sewer he swims in. You know, but They're all a, crooks. There's a, but there's a difference here, Frank. And it's because when you are working, and most of this money is flowing through trusts that are in perpetuity, folks. Sure. Okay. And when you have a trust that lives forever, the object of desire is possession. Possession of everything, because that's the only way you can get growth. Okay, folks? That's it. That explains all these trust funds for the Rockefellers, everything. It's just they just have to consume more and more and more. Well, and it, and, and it explains what people can see going on that, you know, we're getting to the point where, okay, wait a minute, they have consumed so much, there's only so much left, and they want that too, and that's not going to leave enough for everybody else, and everybody's starting to realize this, they call it the, uh, what do they call that, the, uh, the something gap, the wealth gap, or something like that, but everybody notices that, wait a minute, these guys are collecting or possessing more than they ever have before, and they just are going insane. They want more. They want all of it. 
Yes. And, and what and what you have to understand is that like over ninety percent of the government is devoted to maintaining the government. So in keeping the transport moving, maintaining buildings, roadways, pensions, keeping people like you, all you government employees at your desks, at unproductive unproductive jobs, waiting for your senior management to die off so you can advance, okay? That's what's holding back Obama, and that's why he's slick enough to know that he can't just ram it through because this whole government bureaucracy won't permit him. You've got people that are not involved in this crime. However, 90% of these bureaucrats are thinking, if I support him, I'll lose my job because the government will fall and they'll cut my job because it's unproductive. Right. So you have 90%, and that's what Bush is counting on. And that's what – when you get in into the white uh, executive, whoever controls the executive office has to take into effect the inertia of 90% of the bureaucracy is not going to jeopardize their jobs. Right. And now, you know, while you're saying all this, I'm looking at a headline that says the world's next credit crunch could make 2008 look like a hiccup. You know, and this isn't the first story I've seen like this. There is (laughs) all these things, these different things that are going on, and they may be interconnected, but they're all coming to a head. It all looks like they're going to they're all heading. It's like a head on collision that you can coming in slow motion and it's like man these things are going to hit and it's going to be something it's because they've been rigging the prime and LIBOR rates since 1932 folks okay Morgenthau at the federal level uh, Dewey and all the uh, William Rose from Proskauer Rose and um Oh, I forgot. I think his name is Weiss at Goldman Sachs uh, was the other one uh, at the local level. I mean, Goldman sold all the bonds eventually, but they weren't the ones who started out selling them. This is how Bernie Madoff got in there. Okay, folks? And when we start to look at all this, I mean, the valuation of our homes and cars are so overinflated that – you know, what Obama should have done is said to the banks is not only are you going to pay this money back, but you're then going to deflate the value of all these houses on your mortgages and reissue all these mortgages at one quarter of the price. But they need to do that. But it would skew all the state taxes because, remember, all the infrastructure is shot and there's no economy bringing money in except for the taxes, folks taxes on your property. So next week, we're going to talk about how Harvard, after they plundered all the bond money, then they started going for all the real estate for the public schools through charters and what we call the core education that our dear Jeb Bush is trying to promote. Uh Okay, next week, we're going to describe in detail how Jeb Bush's core values was set up to sink the teachers to steal the public school real estate paid with taxes 
and to redevelop it and take control of our the education charters across the nation. Okay, well, that ought to be this interesting. Is, so we want to end the show with just saying that if it comes out in Florida that Jeb Bush's brother was going to slaughter fifty. 50,000 and probably would have turned into 75,000 to 100,000 Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and Latinos who didn't have jobs but were going to like maybe pay their family bills by going into the military just to be slaughtered so that they could sell bombs and start World War III. You are going to get such a response in Espanol. It's going to be grande. Welcome to America, you know, is all I can say. Yeah, that's right. So think about it, Obama. 50,000 dead bodies that Mr. Bush couldn't put through because of Major General Finkus. All right? We are out of time, Dean. Okay. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Dean will be on. Thanks for being on, Dean. Folks, thanks for listening. As always, I'll see you tomorrow. Night, South. Make your way to the floor. Just dance, got me begging for more. Get down in the county of kings. Hear that music makes you wanna sing, wanna sing. Feels like nothing's in the air. Let the rhythm speak you. You can find me on the dance floor. Boop the boogie. I'll be digging at the record store. Boop the boogie. It's a sound that I've been waiting for. Boop the boogie. Hear your DJ drop the track once more. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel. And AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. There was another famine last year.
over, equivalent of all the money that comic relief had raised in Britain about For every day, this amount is given by the poor, the rich, as interest payments on In other words, the poor of the world was financed. It's also a film about war. War you don't see on your television screen. Seldom news. Instead of soldiers dying, there are children dying. More than half a million in one year, according to... More than twice the number of dead in the Gulf War. There's the tearing down of forests and other natural resources. Bulldozing of farmland and the running down of schools and hospitals. In many ways, it's like a colonial war. The difference is that these days, people and the resources are controlled not by viceroys and officers, or sophisticated means. Well, it's, it's a war in which people are dying. Bank and IMF, and or you won't get new loans. The process of coercing most of humanity Bush now calls the New World Order.
World Bank operates under great secrecy. World Bank official is granted immunity. Importance of Bretton Woods. As ours is a mission of peace. hard-nosed financial institution. The bank has always been They've been crying the whole time, but not only the banks, but in fact the, the public institutions have received a total of over $1.3 trillion. That's 1.3 followed by. And reward that the debtor countries have received for paying their creditors $1.3 trillion dollars in the last 10 years is to be more than 60% more in debt than they were in 1982. So if there is no change, this can go on forever, with the debtor countries remitting an average of $12 billion every month. The world's oldest human rights organization, the Anti-Slavery Society, has declared debt a contemporary form of slavery. Nowhere is this more vividly demonstrated than here in the Philippines, where 44% of the national budget is given to paying interest charges to foreign banks, compared with just 3% for health services. Moreover, billions of dollars continue to leave this country just to meet the interest on money borrowed by the dictator Ferdinand Marcos in deals that were often secret and fraudulent. There is perhaps no greater example of the burden of debt than one notorious project in the Philippines. It sits on Bataan Peninsula and is potentially as dangerous as Chernobyl. Built less than 60 miles from the city of Manila on three earthquake faults near two live volcanoes, one of which recently erupted 
This is the Bataan nuclear power station. In the Philippines, it's known as the Big Scam. The scam almost certainly began here, at the Wack Wack Golf Club in Manila, where Ferdinand Marcos used to play with his cousin and chief crony, Emilio de Cini. In 1974, the American company General Electric applied to build the Bataan nuclear power station, but de Cini urged his pal Marcos to accept the highest bidder, the Westinghouse Company. Moreover, the deal would be underwritten by the American government through the Export-Import Bank and a clutch of private American banks. Everybody would make a buck, except the Filipino people. By 1977, President Carter had stopped the building of nuclear power plants because of their inefficiency and faulty design. But he did nothing to stop the same plants being built in third world countries like the Philippines. Moreover, the State Department, which had to approve Westinghouse's export license, knew the Bataan power station was to be built in an earthquake zone, but still it was encouraged to go ahead. To make the story even more uh, dubious, the U.S. government entered this. William Casey, later the director of the CIA, then head of the Export-Import Bank, an agency which helps U.S. businesses overseas by providing loans and loan guarantees. Casey goes to Manila. Casey comes back, recommends that the U.S. government, through this Export-Import Bank, give an initial loan. That opens the gate for all these other banks to come in and give loans. And they start building. Westinghouse at this time does the usual thing. You have delays. You have problems. The price goes up and up and up, first to $1.1 billion, finally to $2.2 billion. Some estimate that the final cost to the Philippines will be $2.6 billion. So you have a $2.6 billion fiasco that will never produce one watt of electricity, which now the Filipino people have to repay. When Marcos was overthrown in 1986, President Aquino declared the Bataan power station unsafe and it was closed forever. At the same time, her government began legal action in the United States against Westinghouse. Last year, the American judge found ample evidence of bribery. On the day before the case was due to be heard in March, it was settled out of court. Westinghouse agreed to pay the Philippines $100 million. But remarkably, the Aquino government agreed to give Westinghouse $400 million just to make the power station work, regardless of its position in an earthquake zone. And this $400 million will be borrowed from the same American Export-Import Bank and will have to be repaid by the Filipino people, most of whom live in poverty. Why should the Filipino people now, having got rid of the dictator Marcos, repay money that he got from the World Bank, much of it, which he and his cronies pocketed. Well, I don't know how much of the World Bank money he pocketed. There are a lot of procedures. We know he pocketed quite a bit, you would uh, agree. Of the World Bank money, I would disagree. Mm. Um, there, is, there are a lot of procedures in place to ensure that the disbursements of World Bank money are for projects which are well monitored uh, and uh, are against uh, purchases which are again well monitored. The World Bank and IMF that pride themselves in being institutions that are helping deal with the debt crisis were being used by a third world president actually for his own internal 
economic gain and that it was allowing him to continue to service commercial bank debt without getting into trouble, continue to get new loans in, from which, again, he would take whatever, 1% or 1.5%, and continue to, to enrich himself. Finally, may I turn to that other slavery, our $26 billion foreign debt. I have said that we shall honor it. Yet half our export earnings, $2 billion out of $4 billion, which is all we can earn in the restrictive markets of the world, must go to pay just the interest on a debt whose benefit the Filipino people never received. When Cory Aquino was swept to power, she described the Philippines as a land of broken promises. Her promise to the Filipino people was that they would be the beneficiaries of their civilized uprising against Marcos. I will vigorously renegotiate, she said, the terms of our foreign debt. But in the end, she gave priority to paying off the banks. Poverty now stands at 70% of the population, a rise of more than 10%. A Big Mac is not for the poor, as the debt is paid back at a rate of more than $6 million a day. The rich, like the elites in all detonations, increasingly rely on private armies to protect their shopping malls, their homes, and their interests. According to Amnesty International, political killings carried out by the government and government-backed forces in violation of the law have become the most serious human rights problem in the Philippines. This is Eddie. He's 32 right, responsible, decent man faced with a clear choice. He can sift through rubbish, picking out bits of glass, tin and plastic in order to make a living, or he can let his family starve. Live in a place known to all Manila as Smoky Mountain. and the ashen rain are constant here. There are two sounds that dominate. The sound of dump trucks and of children coughing as they descend on the newly delivered rubbish like birds waiting for the clod to turn. More than 20,000 people live on and in the rubbish of Smoky Mountain. They are the face workers of modern poverty and their lives are a metaphor for the condition of peoples in many countries whose impoverishment in the 1990s accelerate as the debt of four nations grows and grows. The way these people have to live has much to do with decisions taken far from the poverty and the stench. They are the products of structural adjustment, a modern jargon term with old-fashioned meaning. It means an economy reshaped and controlled.
control by outside forces so that foreign debt can be paid back and foreign investment and export production made attractive by cheap labor. So cheap that these people are forced to scavenge here. It's an economy whose unprofitable public services, like schools, hospitals, and clean running water, are expendable. How long have you lived here, Eddie? Uh, almost uh, 15 years. So you thought by coming to Manila you'd get work. That's yeah. what everybody in the countryside yeah. thought at that time. So you had to yeah. come home smoking now. Yeah, so I decided to climb the Smoky Mountain because if I did not work in every day, I did not eat. This is Eddie's structurally adjusted neighborhood, which periodically gets bulldozed to make room for more rubbish. In order to eat and feed their family, Eddie and his wife, Teresita, must work at least 12 hours a day to make just over two pounds. This pays for two basic meals, mostly rice, for them and their four children. When Teresita was about to have baby Grace, Eddie paid for a midwife by selling wood that was to be the roof over their second room. Every child born on Smoky Mountain stands a good chance of not living to the age of five. Almost 30% uh, of the children here. The problem is uh, the diarrhea and pneumonia and uh, malnutrition. 30% pneumonia yeah. and diarrhea yeah. and malnutrition. This is not surprising, as they live without clean water and sanitation. Nor can they afford doctors and clinics, as social services are cut back and privatized. If you are up to money, Sometimes the children were died. So that no, unless you can buy medicine, yeah, it's quite possible yeah. that children yeah. will die. Mm -hmm. yeah. We try to do our best. That's a very, very difficult situation. It's my house. My, my wife, uh, these are my children, yeah, and the other two outside. Hello, what's his name? Ah, uh, he's a uh, junior, Eduardo Junior. Oh, yeah, yeah very he's nice. He's the only boy. All around here, the one thing that strikes me, there is very romantic music yeah. playing. Are you both romantic? <laughs> the two of you? Are you romantic people? Yeah. Yeah? Because, sure. uh, we have no, uh, almost six years in this year. We have one thing. what happened when your last baby was born? There was a really bad storm that night, and then we were here in the house, and then I was holding the baby and rocking her. The storm was raging, and the other children were squashed here beside us. So the rain wouldn't get to them. It gets flooded here. Never had the money to fix the roof. It leaks all the time. I was worried that if they got wet, they'd get sick, like my other children who died. Ang 
my elderly daughter was four years old when he got sick. What to do? If you're living here in filthy conditions, smoke and everything, bad diarrhea. That time, they were demolishing the houses here. 
that as a result of IMF's policies, half a million workers will lose their jobs in the Philippines this year. That means more children on the streets. Where do these children come from, the children that we've seen on the street? Some of them come from the provinces and a very low-income family here in Manila. They come to Manila with their family. Yes, yes. And they found that uh, Manila is not a heaven as they uh, think, not now. Uh, before, uh, they can uh, get easy jobs here, but now no more. The children were sleeping alone. Have they lost contact with their families? Most of them. Their, uh, their uh, parents uh, have abandoned them already because of this uh, hardship. They cannot uh, feed them anymore. Are they very vulnerable to drugs? Some of them. I noticed some of them looked like they had been using drugs. Yes, yes, yeah. that's true. And prostitution? They are, uh, they are uh, as we call them, uh, walking doll. Walking doll? Yeah, because uh, they are uh, already prostitutes. Some of them are uh, sick and uh, hungry. Uh, but uh, once uh, we brought them to this uh, non-governmental institution like the center, we brought them there. Uh, those social workers take care of them, and uh, we find it fascinating. The government is uh, bankrupt. Uh, the, the government is even uh, paying uh, for international debt obtained by uh, the last administration of Marcos. So you're saying it's, it's, that, that's the pressure on the society that the government has to pay so much. Yeah. The resources are going one way, and if it hasn't any money left to, to do something about the homelessness. Yes. We are supposed to pay uh, the International Monetary Fund. Too many deaths. This 15-day-old baby was born on the streets. The parents are teenagers and were themselves street children and products of the debt era. The mother was born in the year the World Bank declared the Philippines a special case for development and lent the dictator Marcos more than $4 billion. During their lifetime, the number of people in poverty has risen by almost a quarter of the population. Yeah. 
Philippines is getting worse now. Only God maybe can uh, save the Philippines. No reason why this country should be poor. Yeah, there's no reason. We are very rich in natural resources. We can yeah. stand by our own. country abundant in food, but food does not pay back the debt or encourage foreign investors, and so agriculture and a whole way of life is being structurally adjusted. This is the Calabazan super project, turning food growing land into factories for export production. Funded largely by Japan, it is the kind of so-called reform demanded by the IMF. The new factories will produce new revenue and profits for foreigners. They will also produce new debt for the Philippines. Calabarzon specifies the kind of development strategy which only brings ruin to the third world because such a strategy is premised, for example, on massive development, so-called development, massive exploitation of the environment, uh, changing people's way of life, uh, taking land from the uh, people and the peasants to be able to convert these into so-called industrial zones with the problems of pollution and everything. And usually, this development strategy is fueled by debt, fueled by foreign investment. Calabazon project will destroy food-growing land on which an estimated 8 million people depend. The farmers have been given little or no notice, and compensation generally has been meager. In the meantime, many of them will end up on the streets of Manila, homeless. Japanese, American, and other foreign-owned factories will rise on the paddies and fields. This is the kind of development that must be put to its stop because it is not development at all. It is destruction of the environment, it is impoverishing of the people, and it is pushing the country into a death trap. There is a terrible irony here. While the rich world lectures the poor on the importance of preserving the environment, the IMF and the banks tell the people of the Philippines they must export in order to pay off the debt. But all they have is their fragile earth, its minerals and forests. So the earth must pay the debt. The mangroves are plundered, the coral reefs torn up so that chunks of it and tropical fish can be sold to America, and the destruction of the great rainforests is almost complete. This is the final result. In 1991, a typhoon left 6,000 people dead and 43,000 homeless in an area where previously the forest had protected the people from floods and mudslides. By the year 2000, hardly a tree will be left standing Forests as big as Denmark have been wiped out, bringing to an end one of the richest ecosystems on the planet, 
the home of thousands of species of plants and animals. Environment is probably the major victim next to human beings of the debt crisis, if only because countries are obliged to cash in their resources. They must cut down their forests. They must dig up their minerals and ruin their land, producing cash crops so that they can earn enough hard currency to keep on paying the debt. There is an almost perfect correlation between the top debtors and the top deforesters. It's a striking correlation. The Amazon area of Brazil, in Ghana, in Costa Rica, roads are built, incentives are given to allow the extraction of these resources. Particularly now with structural adjustment, there is a program in place in most countries of deregulation, that is deregulating control of these industries. And also, um, there is not enough money to over in the budget to oversee these activities. You're seeing the wholesale raping of these environments. At their 1991 conference, the World Bank and IMF appeared to be making a special commitment to the environment. What would your response be to that? World Bank is now saying how green it is. What it's not saying is how much it has destroyed through its policies. It's not enough to put a green tail on a very large, monstrous dog, which is destroying the environment, and that is what that is doing. Welcome to the World Bank and International Monetary Fund conference in Bangkok. The aim of the conference is, and I quote, to find ways of eradicating poverty all over the world. Alas, there are contradictions. You see, most of the delegates are bankers. Now, this is not to suggest that bankers don't care about poor people. It's just that some things are hard to explain, such as why officials of the World Bank spend, in their pursuit of solutions for the poor, an estimated $45 million a year flying first class and staying in five-star hotels. And why at this conference, chefs have been flown in, especially from Paris, to a country where children still die from malnutrition, and why they need to be shadowed by more doctors than most people in Southeast Asia see in a lifetime. Fortunately, the people who can best advise them on how to eradicate poverty are just across the road. However, the bankers can't see them because a wall was put up to hide the poor people during the conference. The people responded by painting the wall in bright colors in order to attract attention. No doubt worried that the delegates might spot the odd poor person, the government then had buses parked in front of the wall. Most of these people are street traders, but in the build-up to the conference, Hundreds of vendors were almost literally swept from the streets of Bangkok. So here they sit with their empty carts, hidden from view, unable to earn a living until a conference discussing poverty moves on. For years, one of the landmarks of Bangkok, as you drove in from the airport, was a community of people living beside these railway tracks. 
500 families lived here. A few weeks before the World Bank conference began, everything was bulldozed. Homes, a kindergarten, a makeshift school. When it was known that the World Bank meeting was going to be held here, um, they were advised that they would have to leave. There was a quote in the newspaper, the, the English translation of which was, one official said, they were an eyesore. Now that word went around. People didn't forget that word. A lot of the slum people said, look, we're not an eyesore. These are the homes of poor workers. But unfortunately, it was regarded as such. They're very untidy. They're very scrappy-looking homes. And there was some kind of thinking at the time that they should be tidied up. And either you build them all around them or you move them away. And that's what happened. So the, uh, the, the bankers, the delegates of the conference, wouldn't see them, was that? I think that was the idea, yes. They weren't rehoused. They rebuilt their homes 500 yards further down the line, where they couldn't be seen from the road. An added effect for many of them was unemployment, because in the move they couldn't turn up for work and lost their jobs. One of the reasons the World Bank and IMF chose Bangkok for their conference was that they regard Thailand as an economic model for other countries to follow. Good morning, welcome to Thailand, everyone. Good morning, welcome to the Jet Hotel. This conference seems to us to be what used to be called a media event. Others, it looks like a binge. It's difficult for some people standing back to understand that this conference has to do with helping people who are needy, who are poor. Well, I've been here almost a week and I've spent most of my time in meetings, uh, meetings with government officials. Uh, we had uh, meetings of uh, our various uh, committees to discuss uh, policies and I, I don't come away with the perspective that you have at all. Uh, this meeting has provided uh, ministers and governments from all of our members to come and exchange views on uh, on how they see uh, uh, the world economy evolving and the needs of developing countries. And I think the thing that has stood out in this uh, in, in, in this annual meeting of uh, the IMF and the World Bank, and that is a, a pretty strong consensus on what kind of policies work uh, and what kind of policies uh, do not work. Uh, I have a sense, I see a sense and hear a sense of optimism uh, about that uh, here that uh, did not exist in the early uh, 1980s. Uh, I, I, I feel that you're, you're reflecting experiences and events of, of a period uh, in the past and that much has happened, uh, particularly in, in recent years, uh, in, in many countries where they have been able to achieve some success in their, their economic performance. Don't agree. It is now 1991 that is still a major problem for countries like the Philippines and perhaps 70 other third world countries who are still in the debt trap. From the point of view of the banks, the debt crisis is already over because they are covered by loan loss reserves. From the point of view of multilaterals, the debt crisis is over because there has not been any interruption in payments to them. They have set their conditionalities, they have set their terms, and they have made sure that they will be paid uh, continuously. So from their point of view, the debt crisis is over because they are safe. 
the multilaterals are safe, the commercial banks are safe, the bilateral countries are safe, but the people of the third world are not safe because they continue to pay a debt. Debt was crucial to the pressure exerted by the United States in building the so-called coalition against Saddam Hussein. The Gulf War was said to be the dawn of a new age for the United Nations, a new world order in action. In fact, the United States was able to tailor the UN Security Council to its war plans by using debt in the international banks. Egypt was told that if it joined the coalition, $14 billion would be wiped off its national debt. And Iran, reported Reuters, was rewarded for its support of the United States with its first loan from the World Bank since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. The day before the ground attacks, the bank approved a loan to Iran of $250 million. And China received the first World Bank loan since the Tiananmen Square massacre just one week after the Chinese foreign minister met President Bush at the White House. Outside the bank, Syria was promised a billion-dollar arms deal brokered by Washington, and a photo opportunity was arranged with President Bush. An international terrorist was suddenly an old friend. Vote of the non-permanent members of the Security Council was critical. Minutes after Yemen voted against the resolution to go to war, a senior American diplomat was instructed to tell the Yemeni ambassador that was the most expensive no vote you ever cast, meaning that $70 million in American aid to one of the poorest countries in the world would be stopped. Use of debt in bribing the coalition was nothing new. Manipulation of the World Bank was documented in the early 1980s in a secret U.S. Treasury report. The United States, says the report, is capable and willing to pursue important policy objectives in the banks by exercising the financial and political leverage at our disposal. In other words, the U.S. is able to impose its will on the World Bank. Britain's influence on the international banks was small compared with the United States, but British high street banks are deeply involved in third world debt. In one year, 1990, Four countries transferred more than £6 billion net to British banks. On top of this, the banks were allowed tax relief on making provision for so-called doubtful loans. 1987 to 1990, this tax relief amounted to £1.6 billion, the equivalent of ten times what the British public gives in charitable donations to the third world. We invited all the high street banks to be interviewed about this. All of them refused. So we asked the Bankers Association to explain it, and they said it was nothing unusual. As in all business debt, they said, the tax relief would have to be paid back when the principal loan was paid back. In the meantime, the banks can keep the tax relief and still demand interest payments. And this constant demand is true also of the IMF and the World Bank. Clearly, one is not repaying money that was, one has not borrowed in the first place. So whatever is now being repaid uh, was, in fact, uh, dispersed the other way some years earlier. And what you're observing, in fact, is, first of all, the interest 
payable on borrowings, uh, which any person with a mortgage would readily recognize. Um, you're observing a lot of rescheduling of these payments. Uh, all of the severely indebted countries that you learned about have, in fact, rescheduled, i.e. postponed their payments uh, very significantly to uh, many of their creditors. Um, and uh, what you're observing also is the payment of interest on the monies that are, uh, that are in their use. In 1991, Prime Minister John Major announced that the British government would wipe out the debts of certain African countries. The gesture was important, but accounts for only 1% of worldwide debt. To end the tyranny of debt altogether and to fight poverty, there has to be radically new thinking. The only solution for most poor countries is that their debt is written off completely. At the very least, their loan repayments are channeled back into genuine development that puts food growing, health and education before so-called economic growth. The banks are not solely to blame for the debt and poverty, but it's not possible for them to look after the interests of the rich world and the poor world at the same time. World Bank and the IMF should be abolished and replaced by a real development agency that is non-profit making and entirely free of political strings and can help nations develop on their terms, meeting their needs. In Britain in the 1990s, the third world and the ravages of debt have come home as the rich have got richer and the poor poorer. No other country in Europe has seen such a dramatic rise in poverty. One in five British children now lives in poverty. Of course, during the 1980s, a large number of people appeared to be doing well by living off debt. They had jobs and small businesses. But now jobs are being lost and businesses are going bankrupt. And 80,000 homes are being repossessed a year. Many of these people are now joining the homeless. And as in the third world, poverty kills, says Professor Peter Townsend, a world authority. That is not a political or social comment, he said, but a scientific fact. That crisis started in 1982. And if it goes on for another 10 years, think of all those 18-year-olds who will not have known anything in their entire lives but will stare at it. And those kids are extraordinarily frustrated and extraordinarily angry. The human consequences of death have been a largely unwritten story. And if you miss the chance when a child is one or five or ten to provide the basic nutrition, the early education, a home with love and care, there will be consequences when that child is an adult. And I fear we will see those consequences and have to live with them 20, 30, 40 years from now. Given that most countries do have enough resources to provide for their people, 
Why should they have to tolerate a system that forces parents to watch their children die slowly, like the children of Eddie and Teresita in the Philippines? Indeed, why should the burden of debt fall to those least responsible for it? At the other end of the scale, why should British high street banks get tax relief of more than a billion pounds just in case loans are not paid back? That amount of money would immunize 400 million children against preventable disease. Above all, why should the lives of ordinary people be controlled by a few who are themselves unaccountable and whose decisions and judgments are dictated by a belief that economics is meant not to serve people, but as some kind of holy writ requiring regular offerings, even blood sacrifices, to a god called the bottom line. The debt of all poor countries accounts for less than 5% of the loans of commercial banks. If the debt was cancelled unconditionally, the banks would hardly know the difference. If it's not cancelled, the scene shown in this film will endure, and people may take it no more, and perhaps the death war will no longer be silent. That's the kind of world we are to give those children who reach the 21st century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The famous speech of Patrick Henry to the Virginia House of Burgesses, given on March 23, 1775, and entitled Give me liberty, or give me death. No man thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism, as well as abilities, of the very worthy gentlemen who have just addressed the house. But different men often see the same subject in different lights, and therefore I hope it will not be thought disrespectful to those gentlemen if, entertaining as I do, opinions of a character very opposite to theirs, I shall speak forth my sentiments freely and without reserve. This is no time for ceremony. The question before the House is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, 
I consider it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. And in proportion to the magnitude of the subject ought to be the freedom of the debate. It is only in this way that we can hope to arrive at truth and fulfill the great responsibility which we hold to God and our country. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason toward my country and of an act of disloyalty towards the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. Mr. President, it is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of that siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who, having eyes, see not, and having ears, hear not, the things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation? For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging of the future but by the past. And judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last ten years to justify those hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and the house. Is it that insidious smile with which our petition has been lately received? Trust it not, sir. It will prove a snare to your feet. Suffer not yourselves to be betrayed with a kiss. Ask yourselves how this gracious reception of our petition comports with those warlike preparations which cover our waters and darken our land. Are fleets and armies necessary to a work of love and reconciliation? Have we shown ourselves so unwilling to be reconciled that force must be called in to win back our love? Let us not deceive ourselves, sir. These are the implements of war and subjugation, the last arguments to which kings resort. I ask gentlemen, sir, what means this martial array if its purpose be not to force us to submission? Can gentlemen assign any other possible motive for it? Has Great Britain any enemy in this quarter of the world to call for all this accumulation of navies and armies? No, sir, she has none. They are meant for us. They can be meant for no other. They are sent over to bind and rivet upon us those chains which the British ministry had been so long forging. And what have we to oppose to them? Shall we try argument? Sir, we have been trying that for the last ten years. Have we anything new to offer upon this subject? Nothing. We have held the subject up in every light of which it is capable, but it has all been in vain. Shall we resort to entreaty and humble supplication? What terms shall we find which have not already been exhausted? Let us not, I beseech you, sir, deceive ourselves. Sir, 
We have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned. We have remonstrated. We have supplicated. We have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted. Our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded, and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain after these things may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have so long been contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have so long been engaged, and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be obtained, we must fight! I repeat it, sir, we must fight! An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have us bound hand and foot? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, and the brave. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next scale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear? or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? 
Forbid it, Almighty God! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death! Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I am here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Monday, March 23rd, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hey, Melody. Hey, we all survived the eclipse, the <laughs> the full moon, the whatever, the equinox, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we tend to survive these things. That's one of the things about it. Despite all the doom and gloom, we do tend to survive. We will always survive, will we not? It's just well, it's something just we all on. Well, it's, you get to a point where your expiration, you hit your expiration well, yeah, well, and you don't survive anymore. That's not the... It's uh, not this life. Well, I'm not talking about the expiration date, now. I'm just talking about we all survive just in various degrees of comfort. comfort. Yes, various degrees. Convenience. Convenience. <laughs> Some of us survive running down the road with the bullets flying, <laughs> flying past our ears. You know, yeah, I'm out of here. But surviving. Surviving. But you survive. Gold survived today. Yep. Yeah. Hey, yeah, gold was woohoo, 8.30, up 8.30. At eleven ninety one seventy, you have silver up thirty one at seventeen fourteen. Platinum was up eleven at eleven fifty, and palladium was down a dollar at seven hundred and seventy nine. USDX today, oh, 
down 9-2, 96, 88. They weren't able to keep it at that one-point level very long, were they now? That 100 points. No, they touched it, and then they had a rebound. Yeah, Yeah. you know what? They were going to run it. You know, just like anything else, it's a trade. It's a way for them to make money. They ran it. Now they're all short, and now you're just going to see it flutter down. I'm not saying it's going into, you know, it's not going to drop out of bed, but it'll flutter. It'll flutter to the downside. Crude oil today was up 81, 47.38. Paper markets today. You have the Dow. Oh, I haven't been following the, the paper markets the last hour of trade, and they actually pushed it into the negative territory, down 11. Not big, but at least it turned negative after being positive all day. 18,116. The NASDAQ was down 15 at 5,010. Same way with that. And the S&P just down a couple points at 2,104. 10-year yield see, keeps trending down. 1.91% down 0.02. That means the euro has got to be stronger today. Yep, 1.10 up 1.31. That's the same there thing there. They were short in the euro at the time. The dollar was going, you know, it's all a game. It's all manipulated, and they make billions and billions of dollars on it. Unfortunately, you and I are not privy to their little to their little uh, games and moves and uh, we should become a pal with one of them. I think I'll call George Soros and say, hey, George, how you doing today? <laughs> As if you could get to him. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> how about, how about uh, or maybe Hillary? Hey, Hill, how'd you, how'd you take 10 grand? And Send her an email. Don't call her. Send, Send her an email. email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll just right. make that comment. Shakespeare made the comment, the world is a stage and the people on it are but players. <laughs> All right, words to that effect. The way it is right now, the world, he was wrong. The world is not a stage. It's a casino. Off Broadway. <laughs> it's a casino, and, and the people in it are but, uh, I don't know, suckers, gamblers. I don't know what you want to put name you want to put on it, but um, they are... They are not the croupier, and they are not the casino owners. And uh, Well, we had the Germany DAX. That was down 141 points after its, I mean, it's an incredible rise in the German DAX. Uh, that was down a little over one and a, uh, almost one and a quarter percent, uh, down 141 at 11,895. Japan was up. Hong Kong was up. London was up just fractionally. So, um, you know, they'll they'll start taking the little hit on the head a little bit uh, as their currency gets a little bit stronger. But, you know, does it really – I mean, it means something because we follow it. It gives us an idea. It gives us possibly a trend. But on the other hand, hey, we know where this is headed. We know where it's going to go. And we just they play, don't know when. We just don't know when. Yep. And, uh, you know, you're going to see the dollar rise, euro drop, bonds go up, down, euro up, and, uh, you know – Something will bring everything to a halt, and when it does, um, I wouldn't want to be anywhere on those tracks, that's for sure. But what's interesting, too, is you had the fear market, you had the emotion, the fear and greed index, and that was really trending. I mean, last week, at the end of the week, it was like down in like 38, somewhere around in there, 37. Today, it's 50. 
uh, between Meaning that they have become more fearful in the last couple of days? And it came back a little bit less fearful because uh, we're at 50. That's higher than 30. I'm trying to no, no, that's what I it was relatively low yes. fearful level at 30. Now it's up to 50, increasing fear. Mm-hmm. So And rightfully so, I think. You know, <clears throat> it depends on what you're afraid of. Are you afraid of the, you know, the inevitable or are you afraid of the immediate? If you look at the circumstances... From an inevitable point of view, this stuff has got to hit the fan. You look at it from an immediate point of view, it might not hit the fan today or tomorrow or, you know. So it's hard to say, you know, what are you afraid of or what are people afraid of? Are they afraid of the immediate or are they afraid of the inevitable, which may take a little longer? Well, I was talking to you prior to the program, Al, and there's some big money coming into gold. And uh, it was, uh, you know, hey, we've had this level of uh, pricing for gold in the past, the past couple of years. We've seen a dip into the 1150 area a few times, 1190 area a few times, but uh, and it didn't uh, really do much cause for alarm. I'm sure, you had those that are are a little more in tuned with what's going on, and they would come into the market and they would take advantage of the lower prices. Uh, but there's some big money coming into the market, and uh, we've done some significant trades here at Discount Gold and Silver, and uh, it's funds where they feel there is uh, something definitely brewing and about uh, ready to come. Well, the point is that the dollar has been near, well, it has recently hit 100 on the U.S. dollar index. Now, the relevance of the U.S. dollar index, everybody quotes it, the relevance is general, perhaps more than specific, in the sense that I mean, you know, it means the dollar is considerably more valuable than it was a year ago this time. Um, you buy low and you sell high. What's low? Gold has been low. You sell high. What's been high? The dollar. Now is the perfect time. Judging from the numbers we have at the moment, now is a good time to be selling dollars and buying gold. It's just a perfect natural trade, and that's what you're seeing in these in the orders you're talking about. Some of the people out there are smart enough to understand this, and they're just saying, look, I'm going to get the most bang for the buck I possibly can. I think the dollar's going lower, therefore I'm going to sell my dollars now, and I'm going to trade them for something that I think is going higher, which I believe will be gold, and that's going to be the basis for the trades you're seeing, or at least that's my speculation. And not only that, they're taking advantage. I mean, if they're holding paper and they're doing, you know, here you have these markets that are hitting all-time highs, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, hey, maybe now's a good time to take some of that profit off the table. And, uh, you know, how much higher can they really go? And even if they do go higher, I'm sitting pretty nice here at this level. So why not pull out those funds and get them safe? So whatever happens, when it happens, at least I'm offsetting any of the paper investments that I continue to hold. So smart choices, smart decisions for these people that are doing it. The ones that aren't smart are the ones that are just sitting back and thinking it's going to go lower, buying into these predictions, you know, oh, gold's going to be 700 Well, you know, when it goes to 250 I'll buy it. Well, you know what? <laughs> go buy a fishing pole and do some fishing because that's, uh, you know, you're not really serious about buying gold anyway. 
Here's one other point besides that. Let's suppose that the price of gold did drop to where we're talking about. $250. Well, that's all relative. Yeah, I understand that, but here's what it's relative to. It means that the dollar's current value, it's not just a question that the price of gold would fall by, say, 50%, maybe more. It's a question that the purchasing power of the dollar would deflate and increase by 100%. It'd have to double. All right? What would that do to the economy? It's the kind of deflation is always, well, it's certainly the majority of the time, it's a, it's a hallmark of economic depression. We do get into hyperinflationary depressions periodically, but I don't know if we've ever been in one, but it, we do since we have pure fiat currencies. The hyperinflationary depressions become possible. But generally speaking, when you have a, de a depression, you have de dollar deflation. If the price of gold drops as low as some of these people are predicting, it's almost certain that we will be so deep in an economic depression right, that you'll be scrambling and willing to shoot people for a can of beans. So some of the predictions of the super low dollar, you know, nothing's impossible. But you've got to look at the context. What is the context of that? It might be that the dollar is super high and gold is super low. It's conceivable. It's unlikely, but it's conceivable that it'll be in the midst of one extraordinary depression, something that will probably make the Great Depression look like, you know, small item, not, not necessarily all that great. It is unlikely and it's improbable that the price of gold is going to drop dramatically below where it is. Nothing's impossible, can't give you prophecy, but odds are, and I've been saying this for several months now, the idea that the dollar, the increasing value, can't be allowed to continue because it's, it's deadly for debtors. As the dollar grows in value, you've got to pay off your debts with more expensive dollars. It costs more to pay off your debt. That pushes a lot of debtors. People took out a mortgage on the home, a, a, a loan on their automobile. Businesses borrowed money from the bank, and all of a sudden, oops, they, they borrowed anticipating inflation, and all of a sudden we're in an era of deflation. It's going to put a bunch of them into bankruptcy. If we put enough of them into bankruptcy, that will only aggravate the economic condition. It'll push us closer and deeper into a depression. Government can't tolerate deflation. They've done it for eight months, <clears throat> much to my surprise. But I don't believe it can be sustained unless they want to collapse the economy. So what do you do? I don't know. Like I say, the world is to some extent a casino. It's not a play. It's a casino. Um, and this is not a game. You really do have to think, not just act. You have to think, how am I going to, how am I going to place my bet? And we're caught in a casino where you do have to place your bets. It's not easy to just sit off on the sidelines and say, well, I'll watch this. Because if you have any wealth, odds are your wealth is denominated in paper dollars. I have I have an article here, Al, that sort of just shows how we're at a high. You know, when when markets are at a high, just like back in when we had the um, when we had the. Uh, can you take Can you take over, Al, please? Yeah, I can. Thank you. 
But um, Billy has pressing business to take care of, and so I got to do this unnatural. Let's talk about. We've got five minutes till we take the break. Here's an article by Michael Snyder. It's entitled Ten Charts, which show we are much worse off than just before the last economic crisis. He's collected ten charts from the Federal Reserve, ultimately. I believe that's the source on the Federal Reserve. Let me find the first one. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> um, federal debt, they point out how that has doubled in the last seven or eight years since 2007. Federal national debt's doubled. Um, total debt is up by, let's see, it was, it was $50 trillion. We're now approaching $60 trillion. Um, total debt, not just federal debt. He has some others in here. The velocity of money has decreased dramatically. Velocity of money is the rate that a dollar goes from hand to hand to hand. And the faster the velocity of money, the faster we spend things. As soon as I get $100 in my pocket, I go out and I spend it, right? And as soon as somebody else gets that $100, I spend it. And then the next guy spends it, right? And the economy tends to, at least it seems to prosper when we have a high velocity of money. There's a lot of economic activity. And based on that, there's an opportunity to generate profits, Revenues for the government, I don't know who comes out ahead necessarily, but when we have low velocity of money, people aren't spending as much. It's all means. And if we're not spending as much, we're not, we're not buying as many new shoes, new clothes, new cars, new TVs, new homes, <clears throat> new stocks, new gold coins. If we don't spend things, if we are not spending, then prices tend to fall. If prices tend to fall, we tend to slide into an economic depression. It's one of the hallmarks of typical depressions. He's also got the home ownership rate, uh, which has it's, it's fallen to a 20-year low. It's continued to decline even after the Great Recession in 2008. It is not cause for optimism. We've got the employment rate. Uh, it's fallen from 63% in 2007 to 59% now. It's not an enormous fall, but it's, you know, it's 4% from 50, from 63 to 59. It's another hallmark, and it's another one of the, it's another bit of evidence where he's got labor force participation rates, inactivity rate for men in their prime working years as people weren't working. Median household income is falling. Um, inflation continues. He sees inflation continuing, um, which is contrary to the evidence that you'll see in the U.S. dollar index. That's evidence that we have deflation. And the truth is we have some of both. Government dependence continues to grow. And he just says it's crystal clear that we're much worse conditioned today than we were prior to the last economic crisis. That would be the Great Recession of 2008. And his point was that we are far more vulnerable to adverse economic problems than we were <clears throat> seven years ago. All right? Seven years ago, we were in pretty good shape. We went into the economic 
recession, and because we were in fairly good shape going in, we had fundamental problems, but nevertheless, we were in better shape than we were now, and therefore we could get through the Great Recession with less damage than we would experience if we went into that Great Recession right now. And what he's concerned about, he says, look, things are fragile, things are dangerous, stuff hits the fan, it's going to be worse this time than it was the last time. We're going to take a break for some commercial announcements. I'll be back. Melody will join us shortly uh, as soon as she concludes whatever business she has to transact. And here on Financial Survival, please stay tuned. by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless.
Folks, I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. What's next, Melody? Well, matter of fact, let me finish up with what I was doing here. Uh-oh. What, what were you doing while I was gone, Al? Well, I was telling people about an article from Michael Snyder. Ten charts that show we are much worse off than just before the last economic crisis. And I want to talk about two of the points he made out of the ten. And one, his number one point referred to the national debt. He said just prior to the last recession, the official U.S. national debt was a little over $9 trillion. Since that time, it has nearly doubled. So does that make us better off or worse off? The answer, of course, is obvious. Now, that's, that's Michael Snyder's opinion. And I'm not, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, the idea that it's obvious, the answer is obvious. Because the answer is at least confused because we have a debt-based fiat dollar. With a debt-based currency, the more debt we have, the more wealth we should enjoy. It is presumed the greater your debt, the more wealth you have. The the dollar is a debt-based instrument. It's not based on an asset like gold or silver. It's, It's a liability. And the argument is the more of these debt instruments you have in your pocket, the wealthier you are. And it's not clear. When you look at this and you think to yourself, okay, we have twice as much debt as we had prior to the Great Recession. By 2007, we had $9 trillion, Now we have $18 trillion. Now, if it's true that debt is a form of wealth in a fiat currencies in the fiat monetary system we have right now and the debt-based monetary system we have if that's true then wouldn't it follow that if we have twice as many dollars out there today in debt as we had in 2007 shouldn't we be twice as wealthy as we were back then and you can look around and ask yourself hmm, we have twice as much debt <laughs> and are we twice as wealthy and I say the answer is clearly no, we're not. But the significance of that answer, it tells us something about the lunacy that's inherent in a debt-based currency. Any fool can see that if you are carrying little debt instruments in your pocket, they shouldn't be counted as assets. And yet we have a monetary system that says, oh, oh, debt is an asset. And the more debt you have, the wealthier you are. Monk! We have the official, the official, they say it's the official rate is $18 trillion we're in the hole right now, the national debt. All right? The real national debt is probably, according to the Congressional uh, Budget Office and economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, the real nas- national debt, including unfunded liabilities, is over $200 trillion. That's $750,000 for every man, woman, and child in the country. Now, well, maybe not 750. It's, it's 700 ballpark. Do you feel like you have $700,000 in assets? You got another 700000 for your spouse and another 700000 for each of your kids? You do have $700,000, your fair share of the national debt, if it's as big as a Congressional Budget Office, Lawrence Kotlikoff guesstimate, your fair share is seven hundred grand. You got it? 
Do you feel wealthier because the government's gone that far into debt? So my point is that, and I think this is, an, for me, this is an interesting observation. If the debt doubled and our sense of wealth has not also doubled, it's just a kind of evidence to, to tell us what is obvious to anyone who bothers to consider this. We are living in an irrational world where we have learned to keep debt, treat debt as if it was an asset. This is identical in many respects to the old fable about the emperor who's been persuaded by his tailors, that would be the central bankers, that he can parade around in the nude wearing invisible clothes. And we are part of that world where they oh, oh, the emperor is, you know, he is dressed so magnificently. No, he's not. He's butt naked. You understand? And the same thing is true when we are led to believe that a fiat currency is a measure of wealth. It's a debt instrument. It's not an asset. And it's the same thing as the fable about the emperor with no clothes on. And part of the reason we do this program is we're trying to tell all of you to get, at least get yourself a loincloth. Have a little respect for the rest of us. Stop parading around the all together and get yourself some gold. Get yourself some silver. You know, have some respect for yourself. Stop being seduced by this crazy idea that these debt instruments are going to make us all wealthy because they're simply not. Here's another point from Mike Lee. He says, even though Barack Obama promises that deficits are under control, more than a trillion dollars was added to the national debt in fiscal year 2014. What we are doing to future generations by burdening them with so much debt is beyond criminal. Again, I don't exactly agree. I agree with most of what Michael has to say. He's a brilliant guy. And I said, <clears throat> but what are we doing to future generations? What we're doing to the future generations is no more criminal than what the big European lenders have done to Greece. The big European lenders loaned more debt-based currency to Greece than Greece could possibly repay. It was stupid to lend them that much money, right? It wasn't just stupid for Greece to take it. It was stupid for the lenders to lend Greece that much money. And as a result, Greece has since been forced to admit it can't repay the existing debt and won't really try to do so. And that means the creditors, who were so smart when they loaned all that debt-based currency to Greece, and seemingly put current and future generations of Greeks into debt bondage, it means they aren't going to recover their currency that they loaned to Greece. In retrospect, subjecting Greece to debt bondage was probably more stupid than criminal. It's like me taking money and loaning it to a squirrel. Right? And the squirrel is going to take my $100 bills and say, hey, this made good insulation, chew them up, and paper them around inside its nest so it can get through the wintertime. How am I going to get my 100 bucks back? I've got to be stupid to lend my money to a squirrel. The big lenders had to be stupid to lend so much money to Greece. And the same thing is true right now. When, when Michael says what we're doing to future generations is criminal, I'm thinking that future generations are going to do just what the Greeks have done. So, no, we can't pay this debt. This is crazy. Nobody can pay the debt. It's impossible to be paid. Future generations will simply say, sorry, Charlie, we're not going to repay the debt. So who is being brutalized by all this debt? 
And the answer is probably going to be the generation that goes in that depends on the government in the near future to provide its pensions and its Social Security and maybe free medical care and whatever else, welfare, the subsidies. These are the people that are supposedly getting over right now. They're getting something free from government. Government is borrowing from future generations to provide something to people that are living today. Well, people living today say, yay, yay, give me that free lunch. Love that free lunch. But the day is coming when the cost of the free lunch is going to come out of your pension. It's going to come out of your Social Security. And when that happens, the youth will still be able to work. And a lot of people are going to be too old to work. And they're going to say, oh, my gosh, how could this have happened? How could all of a sudden I'm broke and I can't get the government money out of the government? Well, you were robbing future generations. You agreed to a government that lives on borrowing money. And you didn't mind because it was going into your pocket and you were getting the free lunch. Only the day is going to come on. You're going to find out, oh, the free lunch was paid for with my pension. It was paid for with my contributions to Social Security. Everybody's going to be hurt when the room, when the time rolls around that the government can't continue to shell out to the same extent it has in the past. Future generations will be hurt. Current generations will be hurt. Nobody's going to get out of this thing without some sort of problem. But the youth will be able to absorb the problem and just refuse to pay the debt because it's impossible to pay. That means the generations primarily responsible for allowing this debt to accumulate will be the generations who wind up paying at least some of that debt by losing some of their pension funds and whatever other government benefits they could count on. So anyway, I'm just trying to make the point when we say, oh, my gosh, what were we doing to future generations? We may be teaching them an extraordinary lesson. We may be putting them in circumstances where they say, holy cow, whatever we do, don't ever let the government go deeper into debt. You saw what they did to dad, mom, and dad, grandma, and grandpa. They had nothing to support them in their retirement. We've got to make sure we don't behave as foolishly as our parents and grandparents did. Might be the great lesson, maybe even to benefit before this is done. A painful lesson, painful benefit, but maybe who knows. But it's it's just stupid to think that we can borrow money on future generations and the future generations will willingly pay it. It's just stupid. It should never have been done. Every budget should be pay as you go. How much money you got, that's how much you can spend. No borrowing. No deficit financing. If you need extra money for some program, take it out of some other program. But you can't just go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt without bringing on the moment that appears to be approaching. We're going to find that day, can't pay the debt, and there is going to be trouble like none of us have seen. Last time we saw the kind of trouble that might be headed our way, Civil War. This is bigger than the Great Depression, bigger than World War II. You want to see a comparable event in American history? Go back and take a look at Civil War. Does that make any sense, Melody? Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about the youth, 
And we do talk about those, the, the people today, the parents and grandparents that are holding money today in their accounts and their retirement accounts. And they will not allow people to walk away with that money. They just will not. I mean, people will go broke, and this will all collapse. Here is, I thought it was an interesting article. It's, it's interesting. Um, there's a growing number of people, and these are the youthful people, the younger people, um, that are on believing that algorithms can provide rational advice at a cost well below the traditional advisors. A handful of automated investment startups created in the past few years have now passed the $4 billion in assets under management. Now, that's not a lot of money, $4 billion, considering everything. <laughs> it is to me. Well, it is to me, too. But when you're looking at a, a trillion-dollar wealth management industry, nice. you know, it, it's not a lot. But the point is you have these markets at all-time highs, they're looking for ways to get everybody and their brother into the market. These investment management firms usually only begin, they have minimums of 100000 to a million for the traditional wealth managers. Well, now they're after these younger people. Most of these younger people are inheriting uh, a lot of this money, and uh, they're, they're looking to uh, take that from them, too. So, you know, if anybody has any money, uh, they are out there to get them. But this is another sign. This is the this is the the shoe shine boy that uh, was polishing uh, I believe it was Rothschild's shoes and started to give Rothschild maybe it was Rockefeller one of those two men in the 29 stock tips and they turned around and says when your shoe shine boy begins to give you stock tips that's when you go sell everything this is similar. This is similar where you and have why do they why do you think they said when the shoe shine boy gives you stock tips? It's a mania. It's a mania, it's a tulip mentality. It's um, it means that there's people that aren't qualified or in the market. Exactly. And they don't have the money. It's everybody they don't have the money. They could though because they borrowed they were borrowing from the banks to go into the markets. But I mean they were they're gonna take their last dollars that they have and hope that they can, you know, hit the lottery, hit the hit hit the you know, the the big one in Las Vegas. It's a sign of the top. It's a sign of the peak. We had this in 2000 when we had the uh, tech bubble. You had all these day traders out there trying to make a living and trying to, you know, think that they're going to do what Wall Street does, not knowing how Wall Street is manipulated, and it's all done by inside trading. And, of course, they all lost their shirts, and uh, this is very similar. So I thought it was a sign that shows exactly where we are. and uh, um, It's also a sign that we'd be dumb. Mm-hmm. All right? It's a sign that we'd be dumb. You can see what's happened in the Dow. That thing has been run in large measure based on algorithms. What's happened in the price of gold? It's been suppressed in large measure based on the use of algorithms. The market has been distorted by algorithms, and someone is betting that they've built a better algorithm and the world will be be the path to your doorstep. But the fact of the matter is the algorithm is it's essentially fixed by whoever is, are the systems analysts and says, well, I've got a new and improved algorithm. If you believe my algorithm, right, they've just got a new way of fixing the dice. They've got a new way of calculating and predicting that doesn't exactly respond to what the market should be. 
But the market should be an expression of the opinion of all of us put together. Right? And I'm by all of us. I mean all of us that are in the market. And if you're in the market, your vote, you get to vote what you think the price of gold is. I get to vote where I think is the price. And we push and shove. And, you know, we, some of us want it higher and some of us want it lower. And over time, the market moves in certain directions. And the market becomes, is something living. Uh, there has a certain life to it and a certain humanity to it. But you get those algorithms and whoever is devising the program. I mean, you could create an algorithm. It might be the best algorithm the world's ever seen. But if it was, why would you share it with everyone else? Why not just use that algorithm with $500,000 and watch it multiply up into $5 million and $5 billion and keep it all for yourself? And to make that algorithm, you could put a little line of code in there. Then on May 15th in 2016, there would be a flash crash. Uh, and the market would just drop like a stone. And you could buy everything at the bottom, and um, the, an hour later, everything would fly back up again. It, it opens the door. These algorithms open the door for market manipulation. And they make it easier. Not harder, they make it easier. Why would people do it? Why go into it? We're going to go into some commercials. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it. Nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. 
the very best in gold and silver trading. Call toll free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Cedarstrom, this is Financial Survival. Here's an article from CBS 13 in Folsom, California. The headline is, New California Drop Restrictions Coming to Restaurants, Hotels as Home Rules Get Stricter. State water officials are going into emergency mode as it plans to impose tighter conservation restrictions after another dry winter. Reservoir levels statewide are at the lowest they've ever been. Employee scientists are seeing things that are only going to get worse. A scientist at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, we reported on this last year, he calculates that there's only about a year of water supply left in California reservoirs. And he's cool. He's, he's, he's talking not just behind the dam. He's talking about rivers and uh, lakes and ponds and the rest of that. He thinks this thing is a big problem. About a year from now, this is going to be... And the problem is amplified by the fact that they have drained much of the groundwater. Right? They've sucked it out for agriculture and whatever, pulled it up with pumps, dispersed it on the ground to water people's lawns and grow fruit and vegetables and so on, and they're going to be out of water. Now, their hotel and restaurants, um, they won't be giving you water when they sit down for sit down for lunch or dinner. They're not going to give you a glass of water uh, unless you ask for it. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's an interesting thing. They're going to just, that, that makes a difference. Things are so stressed. Whether or not you and I have a glass of water with our lunch is going to make a difference as to how much water they have in California. Hotels won't change your sheets and towels daily. Why? Because if they're going to change them, they have to wash them, and washing requires water. They're not going to put a new clean sheet on your bed every day. I'm going to guarantee you that once they get in the habit, I'm going to suppose that you keep the same sheets. They'll have somebody come in, they'll make the bed for you, and it'll be the same sheet you used last night, and maybe the same sheet you used the night before. I don't know how long your sheets are going to stay on the bed. But I'm going to guarantee you that once <laughs> same sheet from the people before the week. <laughs> once they get in the habit, or they're not they're not changing the sheets for you, okay? When you you get fresh sheets, you get in there and you get fresh sheets, and after that they don't change them until you leave. I guarantee you the time is coming <laughs> when they're going to be looking and say, "Ah, we left these maybe these sheets here for the next person." They, they, they won't. Later we're going to yeah. we're going to say, ah, um. They're going to get tougher, enforced fines, $500 a day for people that are watering their gardens and their their lawns and whatever, and it's going to be restricted to two days a week, and $500 a fine if you exceed that limit. Conservation inspectors will face a $10,000 fine. The inspectors, if they hand residents and businesses just warnings rather than hand out citations and, and fines. 
That's almost unprecedented. The government is going to be fined ten grand each if they don't enforce the water conservation laws. Now that's interesting. All right. That's, that's evidence of the desperation. A guy by the name of uh, Gumberg, I'm not sure what his official position is. He said this is an all-hands-on-deck moment for the state. Um, California's $2 trillion gross domestic product makes it the number one state GDP in the United States. If California were an independent nation, it would rank as the 11th largest national GDP in the world. What happens to the California GDP if four years of drought drags into five? We're not just talking about the production of fruits and vegetables. What happens to California industry and therefore jobs if California runs out of water? What happens to the U.S. economy if the California economy tanks? What happens to California debts and bonds and pension funds if they run out of water? The implication is that next year could not only be critical for California, but also for the United States. Now, we live in critical years. That's not to say this isn't a critical year. Any year isn't critical. Um, but we see possibility of serious serious implications and that domino effect could flow, could run out of California starting next year. And one of the things that really interests me, well, well that, I think is, that I think is interesting, is that California is in its fourth drought year right now, according to this report. We've had drought for four years. And California is about to run out of water if we go into a fifth year of drought. Now, I'd look at that and I'd say to myself, it doesn't seem like a lot of drought. I know, you know, I get, I get the drought is a problem. I understand that. If someone was going to say that we'd run out of water after 20 years of drought, I'd say, oh, okay, I understand that. Ten years, okay. But four years Four years of drought is enough to maybe put the state on the skids. That's in five years, actually five years of drought to next year to really put the hammer down, according to this report. It's evidence that the state of California is extremely fragile. All it takes is four years, five years to shut the state to do significant economic damage to the state. And that state is... It's skating, it's skating on ice, figuratively speaking. In the drought, they're skating on ice. Here's another article from the L.A. Times. The headline is, California public workers may be at risk of losing their promised pensions. And what they explain is that there's a recent bankruptcy case. Stockton, California, declared bankruptcy. Uh, the courts declared that they didn't have to pay because they were declaring bankruptcy. They wouldn't have to pay the, the pension funds for the, the former city workers. All right, and the city workers had argued that the pension funds were sacrosanct. No matter what happened, if the if the city went bankrupt, they still had to pay the pension funds. Of course, said nah, basically. Now, California government pensions may be terminated by bankruptcies of various California cities and counties. But what will happen to California government pensions if California runs out of water? You can bet that the continued drought that we talked about in the previous article, you can bet that it will contribute to more California municipal bankruptcies. You can bet that continued drought will contribute to more defaults 
on cover on California government pensions, you can bet that the probability of collecting any California government pensions is declining. I'm not there. I'm not arguing that all of those pensions will default. I'm not even arguing that the majority of the pensions will default. But I am arguing that a lot of them. And I won't be surprised, 25, 30%, maybe more. California government pensions are going to default, not simply because of court rulings, but perhaps because of the drought, which has to slow everything down. It has to slow down jobs, industry, tax revenues. Where are you going to get the money to pay the uh, pensions? This goes back to the same idea we talked about earlier in the program about lending money to Greece and lending so much money that the Greeks couldn't pay it. And the Greeks finally said, guess what? We can't pay it, therefore we're not going to pay it. Then things going to happen. People get greedy with their pensions. They say, hey, we've got a government union, and if you don't agree to give us more money and more pensions, well, guess what? We'll go out on strike, and then you'll be sorry. And the government and the legislators and the city council, oh, okay, let's give them more money. We'll promise it to them in pensions. But the day's going to come when the pensions can't be paid. The people who are motivated by greed to essentially extort higher pensions from city, county, municipalities, and the state government of California, they're going to find out they're not going to get those pensions. And from an ethical or moral perspective, that's not necessarily an injustice. We all have an obligation, you know, not only to figure out, is it sensible for me to lend a bunch of money to my grandson? That makes sense. Is it a good thing, or am I a fool to lend that money to the grandson? Um, am I a fool to lend the money to my daughter or a good friend of mine or somebody who lives across the street? We have a responsibility as lenders to not lend more than people can repay. And that responsibility has been completely lost. Nobody cares. We get a piece of paper. We use the paper as an asset. We figured out ways to make money off the promise to pay. But it's a foolishness. It's, it's something that's... And likewise, if you are borrowing money, you can't just walk in with a liar's loan and say, oh, yeah, I make hundred grand a year. Yeah, I'm good for it. No problem. There is going to be a problem. And insofar as both the lenders and the borrowers have said, what the heck? Let's just issue loans and we don't have to be responsible about it. We'll have to be responsible. And that's what the Great Recession has been all about. And, that, and that's one of the things that if we go into a greater depression, that will be another cause. There's a requirement. This can't just be party time. Somebody's actually got to be responsible, and for considerable considerable period of time, we haven't found those responsible people in our banks and our governments and even in the public. We have to get a sense of responsibility, and that'll be, that will include not just me telling other people to be responsible. I have to learn to be responsible. And if we do, to the extent we learn that, then we become sensible. And instead of looking to make a fast buck, start looking to protect what we have and maybe make a reasonable rate of return. 
And how sensible is it to get yourself some fiat currency, some debt-based currency? I would argue it's not sensible. It's more evidence of this party mentality. Shop till you drop. Live in a world where 60, 70% of the economy is based on consumers rather than producers. What a cr- That's like eating your seed corn. Let's have a party and let's make, let's use our corn to make, you know, corn, corn whiskey. And we'll party down and then when we don't have any seeds left to plant, plant next year's crop, what are we going to eat then? We've been foolish and irresponsible and we've done it because it is our nature and because our politicians encourage that irresponsible behavior. Vote for me and I'll let you be irresponsible. The responsibility is going to come knocking sooner or later, and when it does, we're all going to have a problem, except for Melody's dog, Ruby. Ruby will get through all right, isn't that right, Melody? Yes, she will. Uh-huh. Yes, she will. Uh, I don't know. Do you think we need to be more responsible? Well... You know, I think people find a hard time to be responsible in a world that is not responsible because it's just, you know, there's been so much pressure and it kind of, you know, you can, it's so easy to can see the, the conditioning over the periods of years when we talk about peer pressure and, you know, there was this little, you know, part of your peers, your peers, the pressure, and you can see how that was all conditioning and, and, and for people to act one way or another mm-hmm. and, I mean, we see this, you know, in the schools, in the bullying, and in, in, in the designer clothes, and you know, everybody is supposed to be the same. Everybody is supposed to be equal. Everybody is supposed to be equal to the higher ups. It's like, well, how do you get to the higher ups when you're not responsible? You know, it, it's you know, it's it's the mentality of I want it today, whether I can pay for it or not. Because that pressure that's been put on me, um, you know, that forces me to do these things. I mean, and it doesn't force them. It doesn't force you to do it, but it forces you to believe that it's smart because everybody else is doing it. If everyone else does it, then it must be okay. We don't have to research. We don't have to think. We don't have to make sensible judgments. We just have to do what the guy across the street's doing, and it could be that the guy across the street is an idiot. Because it's like the padlogs dogs. Eventually, you're going to respond to that ringing of that bell to get your food, or, or not, not the dogs, but you know, Pavlov. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Don't I you understand know? what you're talking yeah. about. What so you're it means talking people... about is when they run out of food, the dog hears the bell and he's waiting for the food. He's going to start biting people. The Pavlovian dogs, and there's lots of them around. Stop giving them food. Guess what? They're going to start biting the researchers. It'll be an interesting time. Watch and see. Not little Ruby, though. <laughs> Not little Ruby, yeah. <laughs> just, you're just lucky that, you know, I saw somebody's got a 175-pound uh, dog, and I can't even think of the proper name of the dog. One of the violent dogs that you see. Uh, a 175-pound pit bull. I am not gonna. I'm not gonna have. I mean, that's that's one dog that'll never be with me. I'm not gonna live with a dog that's big enough to eat me. You understand? Little dogs, fine. Big dogs. Uh-uh. We're out of time, folks. I want to thank all of you for listening. This is Financial Survival. Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord, that's you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. <laughs> yeah.
work all night, I work all day, and pay the bills I have to pay. Made it fast. Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too fast. In my street, I have a friend. If I got me a wealthy man. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. If you have a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom is your PSA count high? Half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the prostate kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate glands. Call Apothecary Herbs for the prostate kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the prostate kit and empower yourself. Toll-free 866-229-3663 or international callers 704-875-8010. That's toll-free 866-229-3663 or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. One, 
Live. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on our talk is empower people. And um, Engineer Frank and I ready to roll here on our talk. Thanks for joining us on American Voice Radio. we got a good show. We're going to be talking about, for the first part, uh, we're going to be talking about some purple bark that's a medicinal. Mm-hmm. Ever see that? Well, we're going to talk about it. And uh, we're also going to check your um, cancer risk. There's some checkpoints here to see, and uh, we'll see. We might have time for you know s- some other topics like spider bites and allergies and stuff. We'll see, and um, and we do have a quack report. But before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fi to righteous men and women in uniform. I lift them up in prayer. I lift all of America up in prayer. I'm praying for righteous leadership to be restored in this nation. You know, absolutely. Uh, you know, somebody that doesn't abuse the power of the pen. Uh, somebody who knows the Lord, I pray for righteous men of valor with understanding and um, and uh, wisdom, you know. They know what righteousness is. Seems to be a blurred gray area lately, don't you think? Oh, I do, I do. So, you know, we're supposed to ask for justice and plead for truth, and Isaiah 59 says that, but we're supposed to, you know, pray as we're supposed to do. You know, hit the knees, seek the Lord's face, and mind the time, folks. Because if you don't ask, you're not going to get it. And then, well, let's do the quack report. Thanks, Frank. What do we have in the quacker? Let's see. Um, there's some health concerns about the wearable technology that's uh, coming to age here. Um, you have some questions, you know, uh, yeah, we're going to revisit that, you know, uh, cancer risk with uh, some of the technology, but you know, back in 1946, there were these ad campaigns all over magazines and the newspapers, and it was doctors in their lab coats, their white coats, and they were holding cigarettes. And the and the and the text or slogan in the ad was, "More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette." Now, mind you, this was before modern medicine knew that smoking could give you cancer, heart disease, and lung disease. But there's this similar thinking that, hey, maybe this wearable technology that's coming out may be hazardous consumers, and it won't be evident to the hazards until, you know, a decade later. So long suspected, you know, the cell phones, for instance, that give off those low levels of radiation could maybe create a brain tumor or mess up your blood and whatever. So um, if you're exposed to that for extended periods of time, there's an accumulation effect. There are all these questions, and, you know, companies like Apple and Samsung, you know, they, they have all these gadgets now that we can just wear, right? Well, um, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, that's within the World Health Organization, they have 31 scientists from 14 countries, and they went through dozens of peer review studies on the cell phone safety thing, and they concluded in 2011 that it was possible that cell phones could be carcinogenic. And, of course, there's, they're out, you know, the word possible. So the WHO panel said that the further away the device is from you, the less harmful. So, you know, text messaging and uh, Twitter and all this other stuff is probably less hazardous than being on your phone uh, real close up for long periods of time. Now, Dr. Joseph Mercola, he's a physician, he says that um, – He's written and he's researched about the potential of these gadgets, cell phones, and so forth with regards to human health. And he says, um, as long as the wearable devices don't have 3G connections built into them, 
there's minimal harm, he thinks. He says the radiation really comes from the 3G connection on your cell phone. So devices like your Jawbone Up and your Apple Watch should be okay. But if uh, you're buying a watch with a cellular chip built into it, then you've got um, a cell phone attached to your wrist, and he said that's a bad idea. So Apple Watch uses Bluetooth and Wi-Fi to receive data, and researchers say there's really no proven harm from those frequencies on the human body, but wearables with the 3G or 4G connections built in, including your Samsung uh, Gear S, um, well, there's possibility, and the word possible, again, could be harmful, but it's not been proven. Well, you know, do your homework on everything, folks, and, uh, you know, further away, I guess, better, right? You know, that's the thing. You know, the Apple Eye was the uh, Google Eyeglass. That was a serious concern, right? It was right up there in your head, you know? I don't know. All right, last but not least in the quack report. Uh, this is interesting. Um, get ready for embryos, embryos from two men and two women. Yep, genetic research is advancing that away so that gay couples could fulfill their dream of having children that is related to them. According to Dr. Guy Ringler, he's a board-certified physician in obstetrics and gynecology, and also he's a reproductive endocrinologist in fertility. He says he's helped a lot of same-sex couples over the years have children of their own through assisted reproductive procedures. He says usually there's egg donor or there's some surrogacy involved that allow maybe two gay men to have children. Uh, genetically rate related only to one of the partners from an egg donor, but not to both. So um, the same dynamic, he says, uh, for lesbians and the sperm donors. So he says, but he gets asked a lot, you know, can we make a baby that's a combination of both of us from gay couples? So now this is where they're going. Stem cell research, they say, has demonstrated that human skin cells called fibroblasts uh, can be turned into embryonic stem cells, according to research at Cambridge, Cambridge University and Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel. They say that embryonic stem cells can be programmed to form primordial germ cells, and then these stem cells that can go on from uh, the germ cell to either being made into an egg or sperm cell. So scientists, if they can figure out how to jump that gap to turn the primordial germ cell into either an egg or sperm cell, then that way they can fertilize either partner's uh, egg or sperm kind of thing. So research is using these primordial germ cells in mice, and they have shown that these cells can be turned into eggs and sperm capable of formatting or uh, forming pups, you know, baby mice. A lot of experiments later, they did that. So um, they say it's likely to take time to do it with the human embryo, the cells there. Uh, so uh, Dr. Ringler says medical science has transformed our society for the better, he says, in many ways. Well, that, my good doctor, is your opinion. Oh, goodness, what else can they do? Hmm. And that wraps the quack report. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm old-fashioned. I just think, you know, you know, the way things were designed originally, created originally, is just fine. That's just my opinion. All right. We're going to talk about the purple bark. 
using it as medicine. Interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you come across a tree with purple bark, it most, in most cases you're going to be in the tropics looking at an indigenous species of tree known as the Tebebuya. It's a tree from the big known ACI family. And there are like a hundred known varieties grown in South America, Mexico, India, and in the Bahamas. Now, these trees are popular with loggers because of their size, and they produce this real heavy wood. So these trees contain this inner bark that has been used as medicine for thousands of years. And it was popular with the Incas and also various other tribal Indians. And Argentina is home to a variety of this tree known to have a purple flower. So different cultures give the bark different names, but in the United States, it is known as Parda Arco, inner bark, and it's now cultivated in Florida and Hawaii. So we're going to take a look at this impressive herb and see how we can empower ourselves. All right, let's talk about this particular bark because it does have power. The Western history of Parda Arco, inner bark, seems to have started in Portugal. That's right. It was the Portuguese that used the bark to treat their tropical diseases like flatworm. So the Portuguese named the bark Parda Arco, which means wood bow. Apparently, uh, they would use the wood to make ships. Uh, now, however, uh, from Portugal, the bark um, and its medicinal uses spread to Europe and then to North America. However, the bark became popular in the late 1800s when scientists discovered a uh, property of the bark called lapricol, which is a phenolic compound, and in this instance, uh, it's basically a disinfectant. So later in the 1960s, scientists discovered that part of Arco bark uh, is also an anti-inflammatory and somewhat of a pain reliever. Now, uh, part of Arco has um, more medicinal uses than that, but science originally thought it was just, you know, pretty much a disinfectant and anti-inflammatory, but it has lots of uses. So the bark is a natural analgesic. It's also antifungal, antiviral, and antibacterial. It is also an astringent, a laxative, and it has antioxidants and antimicrobial properties. So it's no surprise that it also is an antiparasitic, and this is why the Portuguese used it for their parasite issues. So the people of the Caribbean would use the leaves from this tree to treat wounds, to deal with snake bites, and even toothaches. Now, numerous accounts show that it has been used for things like malaria, colds, flu, fevers, infections, prostate, respiratory ailments, ulcers, circulation, and even cancer. So let's check out this cancer question mark here because there is, you know, a great debate on the use of part of Arco bark with regard to cancer. Physicians of, from South America, um, yep, the physicians there, uh, they have used the bark with good results with regards to cancer. Argentina dispenses the bark um, for free to patients who have leukemia, and it's also sold in Brazilian pharmacies. However, in the United States, the National Cancer Institute warns that the bark is dangerous because of use it in high doses. They say um, 
uh, you have to use it in high doses, they say, if you want to shrink tumors or to treat leukemia with it, and then it's too toxic. Well, apparently, it's medicine's opinion that tree bark is a greater risk than chemo and radiation. But what the public is really not told is that this position that they have is based on medicine's research using only the bark's lapacryl phenolic compound, which science has manufactured into a synthesized version of the compound. So like most allopathic medicines, science isolates a compound, and in doing so, they destroy the buffer alkaloids meant to help the body utilize the strong chemicals of the bark. So this is the reason there is toxicity in their research and side effects in drugs. So uh, part of Arco Interbark has, uh, with the phenolic compounds, it has flavonoids and cuminoids and benzenoids and beta-lacalone, also known as bitter compounds, tannins, astringents, and saponins. You know, these, these are all buffers that help the body metabolize the strong chemicals and avoid the toxicity and side effects. It's not that complicated. All right, let's look at some of the hazards of taking too much of part of Arco Interbark. Well, according to documentation, people who ingest too much of the bark, they say can have stomach upset, nausea, and vomiting, bleeding, and anemia. But you want to keep in mind that in the 1970s, these studies done by the National Cancer Institute used the isolated lapacryl compound. So when you introduce an altered source in an unnatural way, there's going to be toxicity. So there are numerous accounts where foreign countries would use the bark to make a tea, and they had great success using it as an anti-tumor medicine. So they didn't really have any labs and test tubes. They just had bark and hot water. So none of these people reported toxicity, bleeding, or digestive upset. So people have been scared off from using a lot of things, including this bark, because of the claims it will weaken immunity, which is incorrect. So when the whole nutrition of the bark is intact, there's no forced extractions or isolation of the plant chemicals, then there are really no reports of toxicity if using the bark maybe either as a tea or a tincture. So if you get an isolated bark product, it would be wise not to use it with aspirin or anticoagulants or blood thinners, okay? So medicinal science recommends that we should avoid using part of Arco bark. And if we do so, if we do use it, we should not exceed one and a half grams or a half a teaspoon a day. But you've got to remember, these recommendations come from the isolated or stripped version of the bark with none of the buffer alkaloids left. So if, if taken, um, I, now basically I've taken many teaspoons of this whole food bark tincture on a daily basis for things like colds and flu, and I've never had any digestive problems, bleeding, toxicity, or side effects. So medicinal science will often test herbs in unnatural ways and determine them to be unsafe, and then the FDA takes them off their safe list. So taking 30 pounds of a herb, isolating its strongest alkaloid, distilling it into a serum, and putting it in a syringe, and injecting it into a lab animal, well, that's just not how the herb is normally used. So keep in mind that with medicinal research, they are looking to make patented drugs from that source, which are known to be toxic. And cause side effects. All right, so what about American use? Well, part of Arco Interbark has been used uh, for many things globally, but in the United States, 
we tend to have a traditional use of using it for things like allergies, bacterial infections, yeast infections, colds and flu, fungal infections, psoriasis, skin ulcers, syphilis, warts, just to name a few. And some people say, well, is it safe for children? Well, the medical research advises us not to give Parda Arco Interbark to infants or toddlers. And as, a, as an herbalist myself, I've used the bark on my own children as young as five with no adverse events. So for young children, you might want to use herbs that you can utilize a little bit more easily, with, uh, especially with infections. You, know, you can use things like echinacea and stragglies root and garlic on the young, really young kids if you're worried. I am, on the other hand, not, not a problem for me, but okay. Well, you know, you just want to be informed about this stuff. So the way I approach herbs is, uh, you know, I want to inform people, and I would like everybody to be as informed as possible about an herb that they want to use. I usually recommend people ask, is the herb going to strengthen or is it going to weaken my system? Because most herbs are strengthening in nature, and they work with the body. Now, at Apothecary Herbs, we include part of Arco Inner Bark in our immune booster formula. It's one of our strongest, most powerful immune-stimulating formulas that we have, and it does have echinacea in it. So when we make this particular formula, it has this very sweet aromatic property. It fills the air with this, this sweet smell. And uh, often delivery men that come by, you know, deliver boxes and RLS supplies, they ask us if we're baking cake because it just smells like a bakery. <laughs> Everybody loves to make the immune booster around here. Mm. So uh, the immune booster with the part of Arco Inobark is a formula um, I would use with dandelion root if, if, if cancer was a concern. You can also pair it up with uh, astragalus root, dandelion and astragalus root. They're a good combo as well. And I like to empower people with information and tools. So that's what we do at Apothecary Herbs. So if you're interested in learning more, on how you can uh, cleanse this spring. Spring's the best time to cleanse and just, you know, set you up for the summer to be really fit, light, healthy, lots of energy. So cleansing now is a great time. Um, some people are looking to get off uh, prescription meds, especially those lifelong drugs that, you know, doctors give them. So, yeah, you can transition off of those if you'd like, and that's what we empower people to do. And if you want, call for a free product catalog and find out where, what we're about. And the toll-free number is 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. If you're outside the U.S., dial 704-885-0277, 704-885-0277. Of course, we have the website, thepowerherbs.com. Thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless. Now you can get there, type in an herbtalklive.com. And definitely check us out. And guess what? Spring is officially coming this Friday, the 20th. It'll be tomorrow. <laughs> Can't wait. So we're having our spring special. That's right. You will receive a free ground ship in the United States on orders of $45 or more. So if you've been thinking about cleansing or getting off your diabetic or heart drugs or uh, just about anything that you're, you know, told you got to stay on for the rest of your life, well, just give us a call and find out. If you have options, yeah, strengthening the body, being less dependent, being strong and independent, that's what it's about. So uh, perfect time to check that out and get free ground ship if you want us to ship you an item or two and cleanse away toxins and uh, 
get empowered. That's what it's about. Uh, if you're on our website, we do have that free ship coupon right on the home page. You can cut and paste that in your shopping cart. You can use it over the phone. And the coupon is free SP and the number three. That's free, F-R-E-E-S-P, and the number free. That'll get you some uh, free ground ship in the U.S. And get some items to you to sweet. Everybody loves free ship. I do. I know I do. I look for that stuff. Really do. Um, yeah, we do have discount coupons, too, on our HMO page on the website, so you can see what applies for you there. And um, if you want redemption points every time you shop, you know, kind of like a, a valued customer, you know, points, you know, and you can redeem them for savings anytime, uh, you have to register online for that when you check out, and you'll get points every time you shop. So it's kind of neat. There you go. Reward points is what it is. Yeah. All right, we're going to talk about checking out your cancer risk because, um, you know, people don't want to hear the word cancer from their doctor. I know I don't. And cancer disease, although common everywhere, uh, it still sends the shiver down the back of anybody who has to hear it. So the U.S. statistics indicate that one in two men and one in three women will get cancer at some point in their lives. And according to the American Cancer Society, which prides itself on their role of informing people about cancer and its causes, well, they offer six major categories for cancer risk. So we're going to check out what our risk is. Apparently, the other services um, to humanity that the Cancer Society offers is that they conduct epidemiological research on causes of cancer. They fund university labs for cancer research, and they supposedly assist environmentalists in advocating a healthy environment on state and federal levels. So we're going to find out what information we may be missing to help us regard, well, take a look at our cancer risk. All right, here are the categories. There are six categories according to the American Cancer Society, and they list them as genetics, which is rare, but people are taught otherwise. Tobacco, lifestyle, your diet and activity. Um, Sun exposure, radiation. Are you one of these people that gets mammograms on a regular basis? And um, the other category is environmental. So if you press further, you discover that the American Cancer Society admits that they do not keep any detailed information on any cancer exposure risks. So if you are, were hoping they would provide you with additional information on the six categories, you may be out of luck. Of course, you can go to their website, cancer.org, and uh, check out their um, cancer risk categories there. Just look for that there. And uh, let's see, we're going to talk about a prescription, too. Prescriptions are important to know about because uh, the American Cancer Society does not list, uh, does list, I should say, a brief list of um, medical treatments that can actually cause cancer, like chemotherapy, radiation, and immune system-suppressing medications. Now, these are treatments patients pay, you know, for to treat various maladies and perhaps even cancer, for instance. So cancer treatments can give you cancer is what they're saying. Now, the last thing patient a patient wants to get is cancer, I know. They do mention substances that can change your DNA and give you a carcinogen risk. So your genetically modified foods, vaccines would fall into this category, and let's call it the seventh category, shall we? And the corporations making these products do not conduct any cancer studies, as you 
are probably aware. Now, there is a list. In 2004, the federal government released their list of cancer-causing carcinogens, and they titled it the Report on Carcinogens. It's the ROC report, and this report is published every two years by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. So the report includes, quote, known and, quote, reasonably anticipated causes of cancer. So their list contains 246 cancer-causing agents, and also for the first time, they listed viruses like hepatitis B and C and the human papillomavirus. They also included for the first time x-rays, lead compounds, grilled meat. Anybody like cooking on the Barbie way too much? Uh, Textile dyes, paints, and ink can be an environmental exposure risk for getting cancer. I know I'm coming up to a break, so when we come back from the break, we're going to be talking about um, other things regarding, including also the list of drugs that can expose you to a cancer risk and how you can uh, deal with this, detoxify yourself, and, you know, just strengthen yourself and, and have that hedge against all this mess. I mean, because that's what it is, a flat mess. We'll be right back. Yeah. Feel it, baby. into the original medicine. Herbalist Wendy Wilson will be right back. Don't make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our extra strength pain relief formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704 704- 875-8010 or order online at the three W's dot thepowerherbs.com. Your assignment is to find out what herb secrets herbalist Wendy Wilson has on Herb Talk Live. Greeks thought thyme herb provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. 
The extra benefit of Thyme Herb is that it soothes nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for Thyme Tincture and Tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 that's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Wendy Wilson, and we're checking out our cancer risk. Right before the break, we were talking about some of the things that are on the list. And um, when I read about these government and healthcare reports, um, and they say cancer is important, or quote the importance of cancer, I have to wonder what they mean by that. What are they really saying? Are they saying how financially important a disease like cancer is to the medical community? Is it sort of like saying abortion doctor? That doesn't make sense because a doctor is supposed to save lives, right? Right? So it's kind of like an oxymoron. I don't know. The meaning associated with abortion to me is death, and the meaning associated with a doctor is wellness and health and life. So I, I don't know. I just pick out these things when I read them, and I go, hmm, is there like a underlying message here? 
Now, you do, do you think that these agencies would spend, mm, I don't know, $6 billion a year on advertising campaigns associated with cancer disease if they were not important? Think about it, right? $6 billion on advertising. That's some expensive and important disease right there. So it must be more important than $6 billion. Because on just breast cancer alone, the U.S. taxpayers are paying $780 million a year. So to know exactly how much is raised for cancer cures is really hard to say, but they, it's estimated that it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars that is raised each year and no cure. Yes, cancer is important, but not the kind of importance a cancer patient thinks it is, Okay. All right, let's talk about, well, let's get our Sherlock Holmes hat on because what we really need is a Sherlock Holmes to really blow the lid off the cancer scandal because that's what it is, cancer scandal of the century. Because it came close in 1988 when a professor of economics, uh, George Mason, um, I'm sorry, he's a professor of economics at George Mason University. His name's James Bennett. He kind of cracked out, the, he kind of went through with his calculator the charitable organizations known as the American Cancer Society. And according to the good professor, this society had a fund, and the balance was over $400 million. And he says approximately $69 million is tied up in land and buildings and equipment. And then this society, this uh, American Cancer Society, spent only $90 million, that's, he says, 26% of their budget on operating expenses, medical research and programs. The rest, the $240 million, or 60% of the budget, went to generous salaries, pensions, executive benefits, and, of course, overhead. So the next year, the holdings were $700 million, and the American donations that are contributing to it is around 6%, or $350 million. That goes to their bottom line to help fight cancer. So other donations come from, like, large corporations, pharmaceutical companies, cancer drugs, telecommunications, and entertainment industry. So you may want to ask, well, who's on the board at the American Cancer Society? Well, heads of companies are uh, people that are uh, from laboratories, uh, pharmaceutical companies, basically, uh, biotech companies, entertainment industry, uh, Boeing, Viacom, telecommunications, and um, even department store chain billionaires are on this board. So the American Cancer Society is one of the world's wealthiest nonprofit institutions. So, yes, cancer is important. Yeah, it's important and will remain important because money answers all things, right? Yeah, remember that the next time you're asked to sponsor the Walk for the Cure or schedule a routine mammogram. All right, let's look at the drug list real quick. According to the folks at People's Pharmacy, there are several prescription medications known to cause cancer in lab animals. Remember, lab rats are used because their metabolism is the most similar to humans. So here is the list of the FDA. Um, uh, here's the list, and, of course, the FDA is really not required cancer testing for these drugs. Uh, uh, they just put warning labels instead on the box. Okay, so your hormone replacement or HRT drugs are used for things like menopause. They offer a risk of breast and uterine cancers. Burn medications like Prolisac. 
causes abdominal cell growth uh, and stomach tumors, blood pressure drugs prescribed for hormonal imbalance and facial hair growth in women causes tumors in rats, dermatitis, eczema, topical prescriptions are associated with lymphoma skin cancer, also cholesterol drugs reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1996 that fibrate and statin drugs cause cancer in rats. Cholesterol drugs um, like Viatrin, uh, Vicotrin cause cancer in test subjects according to the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. And statin drugs for cholesterol offer breast cancer risk as high as 143% in women according to the Journal of Epidemiological Biomarkers and Prevention of 2013. And for men, often an elevated risk of prostate cancer as well on the statin drugs, according to the Journal of Prostate in 2011. So the longer you're on the drug, the higher risk, according to Shane Ellis, Ellison, uh, the chemist for the people's chemist. Now, Gardasil, the HP vaccine, is under scrutiny. Uh, Dr. Christine Fiala, general practitioner at Vienna, Austria, she says the vaccine does not prevent cancer and is not safe. A recent report from Australia indicated the vaccine can cause premenopause and destroy ovaries three years post-vaccination. So other cervical abnormalities, including cancer, are showing up in four or five years down the road after the vaccine, according to the source. Now, vaccines like hepatitis are in question as well as your GM foods causing DNA modification, offering cancer in invitation to thrive uh, research. All right. So if you thought smoking and excessive sun exposure were your major cancer risks, you can see that that's just the tip of the iceberg. So you will have to investigate everything you use and that you're exposed to. Um, Don't take, you know, the people's word for it. You, you need to be safe. You need to, you know, prove it before you use it, okay? So detoxing a body is really important these days. Um, our ancient ancestors really didn't know about toxicity, that, especially the kind of toxicity we have today. But we have vaccines, we have antibiotics, we have smart meters, we have GM foods. We have a lot more things that we need to protect our body from, and toxins can accumulate We can have an accumulation of radiation and things. So we have to make sure we clear that toxicity away. And I knew this almost 20 years ago, and that's when I decided what area of herbal medicine I wanted to go into. I knew that if we cleansed away toxins and put good nutrition in to boost our immune system, that we had most of the um, internal medicine issues taken care of. Yep, in a nutshell, pretty much. So cleanse and nourish, really simple. It's kind of ancient, actually. (laughs) Our ancient ancestors used a lot of these herbs, and they were cleansing, didn't realize they were doing it, but they just knew they felt better, okay? So cleanse and nourish, uh, and you got most things whooped when it comes to health issues. So um, I know it's pretty general, pretty easy. It's not rocket science. There's not a lot of test tubes and laboratory uh, stuff involved, Uh, nothing neat and and, and kind of, um, I don't know, awe-inspiring, but... uh, you know, herbs are here for the service of man. God said that, and I believe them. And he says they're meat. And, you know, Genesis chapter 1, and that means they're powerful. They're full of protein and vitamins and minerals that assist the body to balance and heal itself. So um, 
I, I take that route over the toxicity route every time. So if you're interested in learning how you can do the organ cleansing in the proper order for safety and success, then the folks to call are the folks at Apothecary Herbs, and they'll show you how to do that, and uh, they'll provide the tools, and you can uh, take care of it too sweet. Their toll-free number is 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, or visit their website, thepowerherbs.com. Yeah, get a free product catalog. And if you're on their website, don't forget to sign up for their newsletters that go out each week. A lot of empowering information in there for you as well. All right. And those newsletters are free, so there's no subscriptions free, so you can take care of that online. All right. We're going to talk about spider bites because, you know, weather's going to get warmer here. Next few weeks, people are going to be going outside. There's spring break coming up for the, you know, college kids. And then, of course, you know, then there's summer vacations and there's hiking and there's camping and there's all that good stuff. Or maybe you're going to clean up the backyard and move a wood pile. Well, we're going to be talking about spiders then. Spiders are usually not on people's minds unless, you know, of course, it's Halloween. Or, you know, maybe they're crawling through the attic and they see spider webs, you know, or, or in the basement and they see spider webs and they think, okay, spiders. But these tiny little creatures, they actually serve a purpose in our ecosystem, but they can pose a dangerous threat when we disturb their habitat. Yeah, some of them are venomous, so we're going to look at this. Most people tend to run to their doctor's office or the emergency room for treatment from a venomous bite, but according to Dr. Donner Seeger of the Tennessee Poison Center, this may not be necessary, and it could cause more harm than good. So we're going to take a look at the risks and opinions that we have faced on these uh, spider bite issues. All right. The world has about, get this, I never knew there were so many, but we have 170,000 species of spiders. And out of that, 35,000 um, we should stay away from. Mm -hmm. So out of these numbers, there's a handful that are very dangerous, and although it is a rarity. There are 27 spiders that can kill with one bite, just one bite. So spiders are rarely aggressive, but they attack when they're disturbed or provoked. Now, North America has identified 3,000 species of spiders, and of those, there are two species that are really uh, something to be concerned about. Um, the recluse spiders, okay, pretty dangerous um, the Laxocellus, known as the recluse spider, and the Lactrobectus, known as the widow spider. So we got the brown recluse, we got the black widow. These are dangerous. Um, they kill about four people a year, basically. I know that number's not high, but still it's four people that didn't need to die. All right, so with most spider bites, it is the bite area that offers health complications. So often spider bites, like the brown recluse, produce this skin lesion, and in some instances they can require urgent care. So, you know, heads up. Let's talk about the brown recluse. Um, it, it, this is a spider that likes to live, of course, in those dark places like wood piles, your basements, your attics, you know, places that you don't frequent, right, you know, that are kind of stagnant. They like that. So the spider is um, nationwide in the United States from Atlantic to Pacific, but it prefers the warmer regions, you know, the southern segments of the country. 
So this spider is usually dark brown and has this violin shape on its back with uh, the neck of the violin shape pointed towards its rear end. So most spiders have eight eyes, but the brown recluse has six, has a pair uh, in the front and two pairs on either side. So what makes this spider such a health hazard is the venom it has. It will kill the tissue, uh, causing severe necrosis at the bite site, and then it spreads out, causing significant cutaneous injury. So for this reason, this spider can be deadly to humans. Now, most people seeking medical treatment will be subjected to a lot of antibiotics, some steroids, antihistamines, and maybe even debridement of the bite, cutting away tissue as deep as the venom penetrated. Ugh. So this is all modern medicine can do for a treatment of a brown recluse bite because they can't neutralize the venom, okay? So disfigurement is often the result from a brown recluse. So this is not an aggressive spider, but it usually bites when it feels threatened. You disturbed it, you know? Okay, so you're rummaging around in the basement or attic looking for, I don't know, whatever, and it didn't like that. It bit you on the foot, the ankle, the hand, whatever, and now you've got a problem. So now the problem most people don't know that they, you know, they don't know. They just don't think about it. They're moving a wood pile. They're cleaning out their attic. And they disturb the, 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 the spider, and, um, and it's not until later they realize they got bit, you know? A couple hours later, they may discover it. So if you live now in Hawaii, uh, there's a close cousin to the brown recluse there called the brown violin spider. Mm? Equally not happy with that either. All right, let's talk about the black widow. Uh, also, the southern black widow of... Uh, Black widow, there's a species of spider. It has 32 varieties that live just about everywhere from Africa to the Middle East, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Mexico, Hawaii, North and South America. And they can be difficult to identify when their features differ from region to region. So the female spider is usually shiny black with the yellow, orange, red hourglass mark on the underside of the abdomen. And sometimes the hourglass is just a dot shape, okay? So the black widow likes to be sheltered. So it's, it likes wood tiles. It likes a rubble. It likes to be under rocks and stones, hollow stumps, in your shed or garage. So if you have an undisturbed or uncluttered area that it likes to hang out in, may crawl spaces, attics, basements, you name it. So beware. Well, let's talk about the bite because it can be painful after you get it. The black widow is known for its painful bite, and it can be fatal, especially with the very young and old. So small amount of this venom, uh, it's a neurotoxic poison, 15 times more poisonous than the prairie rattlesnake, okay? It will attach, the venom will attach to the central nervous system and the respiratory system, you could experience respiratory arrest because the nervous system is compromised. So this is important to know. Uh, now, sometimes uh, symptoms are you could have a headache, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, fever, high blood pressure. Sometimes victims don't even notice any pain with the bite. And people with cardiovascular disease are at a greater risk and will need to be hospitalized. 
So the, the risk of death is less than 1% with effective treatment. Expensive um, antivenom uh, was developed in uh, 1956. So Black Widow, there is an antivenom, but it'd be expensive. So I would say if you go to the emergency room and they treat you and they're there maybe overnight, uh, you're probably looking at a $100,000 hospital bill. Yeah. Well, let's not panic now. Let's just not panic. Uh, health experts experience with spider bites say you shouldn't panic. In some cases, people don't see the spider and they really don't know what bit them until the symptoms start to develop within one or two days. The brown recluse will often produce a bite area that has a white center and then a red ring around it, kind of like a bullseye. And in many cases, a cold pack to the area helps with discomfort. Commercial ointments and antibiotics are not recommended. So if the victim is a child younger than 12 and has a brown recluse spider bite, a urine test can check for blood in the urine, indicating uh, the breaking down of the red blood cells causing the cell structure damage. Uh, so um, hemolosis is what they call it. Now, if there are no signs of a serious skin lesion or nervous system impairment, there should be really no complications from the bite. Let's look at some of the other signs, though. Uh, if you're not sure if you were bitten by a venomous spider, there are some other indications. The bite may itch. The bite uh, site may be red inflamed and hot to the touch. Fang pits may be visible, just like with a, with a snake bite. You may have a fever. The bite site may blister. The bite site may turn a bluish color. The bite site may form a crater where the skin just sinks in. And you may have vision problems or difficulty breathing or loss of motor control, okay? Uh, medical treatments for some victims of spider bites, uh, venomous bites like this, um, they rush off to the emergency room. Uh, parents with young children and elderly folks with heart conditions are at a higher risk category when it comes to these bites. So take, for example, a woman, a woman in Arizona. She had to pay $83,000 for a three-hour hospital treatment for a scorpion anti-venom treatment. The hospital pays about $100 for this drug that they gave her. And in 2013, a North Carolina man by the name of Eric Ferguson was treated for a venomous snake bite at his local hospital. And he was there 18 hours uh, for a stay there, and they uh, billed him $81,000. Now, sometimes the anti-venom is expensive for hospitals, and sometimes it's not. Some of the criteria will push up the price of the anti-venom if it's made overseas and there's a limited shelf life. So you need to check that out. Uh, the same thing for um, uh, other types of vaccines that I think are made overseas, and you have to go to the hospital for the first round um, and, you know, um, just check out those things before you go. Uh, so how do you neutralize the venom? Well, um, some people just don't want to go to the hospital because they know they can't afford a hospital bill. So what then? Well, there are many things that you can do to neutralize venom and reverse the damage. For those with heart problems, you'll want to have some herbs that will assist with cardio system to strengthen it, to neutralize the venom, um, herbs that will help repair damage to the skin, the tissue, and to tighten up uh, the tissue so you don't have a necrotic issue. Uh, immune system support is also required. So um, there are a few things that we have on hand, especially if you're out in the woods and you can't get to medical treatment right away and, you know, time matters, you might want to have a heart attack pack 
and you might want to have a snake bite kit. And we have those both on the powerherbs.com website, and it's in our product catalog. So you can, and they're kind of neat. They're in a little pouch, and it's a one-pound pouch, and you can wear it through your belt. Uh, so if you're hiking, you're camping, you could take it with you and have it when things come up. So uh, these, we absolutely have used these items. Um, we did have a gentleman who was a farmer. We did have a brown recluse spider bite use the snake bite or the spider snake bite kit and um, reverse the bite within 24 hours. He said it was like he wasn't bitten. Uh, so we use a couple of things topically. We use a couple of formulas inside the body to neutralize the venom. So uh, there are some things out there. This is typically what Native American Indians would do, right? Yeah, this is what they would do to help themselves uh, detoxify from the venom. Now, there are situations where you have to use common sense now, and you better go to the emergency room and get some anti-venom, but um, there are some options here if you can't do that. You can use herbs to neutralize the poison in the blood system and also draw as much of the venom back out through the bite site. And we don't recommend that you do it like they did in the movies where you take a knife and you cut and you suck the venom out. Don't do that. Don't do that. There is a herbal poultice that you mix up with water and put it on the bite, and it draws the venom back out. So uh, that basically was an invention from the Native American Indians. It's really cool. So you can check it out at thepowerherbs.com, thepowerherbs.com, or give us a call toll-free if you want a free product catalog at 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663. And the best thing is is the herb kits have a shelf life of 10 years, so they're not they don't have a short shelf life like antivenom at your hospital. So um, definitely check that out as well. All right, and if you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for the free online newsletters. There's two of them there under books and newsletters. There is the American Survival Newsletter that goes out on Tuesday, and you get health information, um, gold and silver updates, financial market stuff, you know, um, neat things like that. And also on Friday is the uh, Health Quest version of the newsletter, which is all about natural therapies, and that goes out on Friday. And you can just sign up for free at thepowerherbs.com. There's no subscription price. And it's just empowering information, and you can share it with friends and family. So, you know, pass around the knowledge there, as always. And, um, and uh, be empowered, because that's what we like people to do, is just strong people out there, strong America. That's what we like to see. If Now, if you have a health topic you'd like me to discuss on the show, feel free to drop me an email off the powerherbs.com website. I will try to include that. I know we got allergy season right on our heels, so I think next time we're going to cover some allergy topics. I don't know about you, where you're at, but here in North Carolina, all the Bradford pears are blooming. A lot of pollen. Tree pollen is way up. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, medical advice, and medical advice, and any products there. I'm your host, next time, well...
food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper... For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.